Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are talking the latest Godzilla movie, American Godzilla movie, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Yes. And we will be reviewing that. I didn't like it. I did like it. Fight. Yes, it's going to be like the movie. It's just let them fight. Let them fight. That's what the uh, after they talk a lot with really awful dialogue. Yes, I think it is definitely a flawed movie, but I enjoyed it quite a bit by the end. There's good things about it. I'm not going to be a total grump. Yes, but um, we will get into that. Uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the show. We are also going to be previewing next week's E3 show. Uh, E3 is a little downsized this year because Sony decided to take their ball and go home. Yes, EEA decided we're not going to do. We don't make video games that are good, so we're just yeah. going to do uh, like streams and we're not really going to do a press conference but there's a couple of people you know i think microsoft and nintendo will have pretty interesting years so we're going to speculate wildly about all of that and we'll talk about that we got some news including a fucking crazy new death stranding trailer yep it's a solid eight minutes of death stranding when i opened up youtube and saw that time code i was like fuck you kojima okay let's go Mads mickelson singing a lullaby to a baby in a liquid jar yes is is everything, really. It is everything. I think that's just, that's that's peak art. We can shut down all artistic pursuits as humans now. Yes, until we find something more silly for Matt Mickelson to do in a video game. Oh boy. I mean, Hideo Kojima is back in the swing of things, you know? Yeah, you know, there's, there's always going to be a Death Stranding 2. We'll see what other crazy shit we can do. Oh boy. Alright, uh, Sean, what else is going on? Um, a couple of things. So I, I've um, I did finish Mafia Three. Nice. So not not much to add to that um, from our discussion from the last couple of weeks, other than it's an awesome game. Um, I really really like the way the story wraps up, um, and it's a game that has multiple different endings. And so it's a rare game where I feel like every single uh, possible ending is really cool. It's not just like you know most games. It feels like oh, there's the one true ending, and then there's everything else is kind of like ah, oh, this is okay but not great. Um, we should probably tell yeah. the folks that we have two dogs here with us for the first time on the show. Yes. Uh, my dog Phoebe is here, and my other dog Sunny is here. We usually record over at Sean's house when I'm in town. We're recording at my house, uh, and the dogs are here, and they are demanding attention. So if you hear dog sounds like crunching on a bone or panting or... or licking my hand. Lick, they are both licking Sean's hand right now because he's being very nice to the dogs, which I is am. good. Um, and they very much like him for that. Uh, but yeah, they're going to make some noise. They, they like to drop their bones on the ground, and it be, it's a loud sound. So if you yeah. hear that, just imagine two very adorable dogs, and it'll make your day better. Yes, they're very excited about the endings to Mafia 3. Yes. Um, it's yeah, their favorite game. It is. And, and rightfully so. It is. I still feel like that game was really critically underserved by um, the gaming press at the time. It's a game that definitely has flaws. It has some technical issues and stuff like that. It's repetitive, but the stuff that it does do well, it does phenomenally well. Um, so, yeah, I think the way that the story wrapped up was really cool. Um, don't want to... I can't really talk about it much without spoiling it, and it is a game that I want people to play. So, nice. yeah, final word on Mafia 3. Two thumbs up. Really cool game. People should play it. What about you, Jonathan? What's going on with you? Sean, I got something to show you. Okay, cool. I got my Nintendo Switch here. I'm going to load it up. I'm going to show you a clip that I saved. We're going to watch that clip together. This is me playing a video game. Okay. That y'all thought I was never going to play. I'm this excited. is me yes, beating... It's, it's Dark Souls? It's Dark Souls. I forget what this boss's name it's is. the Gaping Dragon. It's the Gaping Dragon. Yes. And this is me beating it. And then doing a cool pose. 
while the boss collapses on top of me. Yeah. I fucking won. That was my second attempt. Congratulations. I mean, the Gaping Dragon's not a particularly difficult boss, but... Yeah, I don't. I didn't know you, if it was I saw you enough, using but... a crossbow also, the weapon of, of cowards, but that's fine. Fuck off. That's just historically, you know, it's just... It's, you know, it's what I've been, you know, keeping up with Game of Thrones. It's the weapon that Joffrey likes more than anybody else. So you're, you're in the Joffrey camp. So congratulations. Well, now I feel bad. Yep. Do you want me to tell you about my adventures with yes, Dark Souls? Yes, I want to hear not? about Dark Souls. I've been trying to get you to play these fucking games for like what feels like fifty years now. Well, Sean, I'll tell you. I started. So, okay, so I'm playing Dark Souls on the Nintendo Switch. They put out Dark Souls Remastered on the Nintendo Switch last year. It is not as remastered as the other versions. Obviously, uh-huh. it's pretty much the 360 PS3 version, but in 1080p with a stable frame rate. Which is a good upgrade. Yes, the Dark Souls on the 360 did not have a stable frame rate, so that's no. nice. I actually, I didn't remember this. I, I, I'm at my parents' house, and my 360 was in the basement, and I dug it out to look at a couple of things, and I realized I had Dark Souls on there. It must have been a game with gold or something. I think it point. was, yeah. Yeah, and I, I did load it up just to be like, do I want to play this? Do I want to dive in? And I played through like the, the um, tutorial area. What's it called? The Undead... Asylum? Um, yes, the Asylum. Yeah. I played that again. Even there, it's like just the frame rate is just wherever the fuck it wants yeah. to be. And, and that's kind of what convinced me, like, yeah, no, I'll get it on Switch. That sounds better. Because um, I only have my Switch with me right now, so I, I wouldn't be playing it on anything else. Um, yeah, so, you know, buy with confidence on the Nintendo Switch. It's a great port, other than they do the absolute cardinal sin of ports to Nintendo systems, which is that they don't switch the confirm button in the game to A. Okay. Which... Like, they just keep it in place where it is on, a, on an Xbox controller or a PlayStation controller, which is the X or A button on one of those, you know? Yes. But on, a, on the Nintendo Switch or any other Nintendo controller, that is still B. And if you play Nintendo games, like, my default is I want the button on the right of the, of the, of the like, diamond to yeah. be confirmed. It messes me up on PlayStation as well. Like, like so, so because and for people who don't know, that is also just the way it is in Japan yeah. on PlayStation, anyways, where Circle is confirm and X is like back. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a weird American thing that we switched those at some point. Yeah, and and because I play Nintendo more than anything else, that's kind of where my mind is. So it's weird. You press A on the Nintendo Switch menu to get into Dark Souls, and then it's B for everything. They had to switch the in-game like letter to B, but mm-hmm. they didn't just like give an option to like, hey, swap these two, which I assume is an easy thing to do. I'm not a game developer. But... Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. Just I think game development's very easy, and, and anything must be no, no, no. I mean, thing like that I mean, button mapping. <laughs> you, I think, from what I understand, you'd be surprised at how much shit that that can okay. break. But Especially there's... a game that is not, let's say, technologically um, a on a point. sound base like Dark Souls. Yeah. It's fine. You get used to it, but um, it is just kind of funny. I, you know, so, so okay, so I got Dark Souls Remastered uh, on the Switch because you all remember my stories about Cuphead and yes. me finally embracing the grind and mm-hmm. the difficulty, and I was just in a place where I was playing some other games and none of them were giving me that hit I wanted in my veins, Yeah, and I'm like, Dark Souls is right there, I can get it, I, why the, I, summer, I have nothing else I'm doing right now, this is the time to do it, and so I got Dark Souls, and I... I will say, Sean, the first day, I fucking hated it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just a bad game and that you all were fucking idiots and it was an Emperor's New Clothes situation. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, is that that like mysterious tweet? Yep. I remember seeing yep. some tweet of like, what the fuck game is Jonathan playing? That's like a you said something about like, oh, there's this game that's out there that everyone I feel like is some sort of practical joke or something. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is he playing? Because I started it and I'm like, these controls suck. He's so slow. All the challenges from me barely being able to swing a weapon fast enough. It looks bad. Like I just didn't like it. And then cut to last night, Sean, yes. about five or six days later, I'm going through Sen's Fortress. I've okay, rung yeah. the two bells. I'm going through that castle. That castle is a fucking bitch. Yeah, it's a motherfucker. It is hard as shit. And I was up to like 2 a.m. just busting my head against this level until finally like I couldn't hold the controller from fatigue. And I went to bed. Yeah. And then I got back up in the morning and the first thing I did after playing with the dogs, yes. I took them out and then I sat down. It took me about another hour, but I finally got to the bonfire in Sen's Fortress. That's about where I am right now. Congratulations. And uh, I love it. Sean, I, I'm over the hump. This is a great game. It's amazing, yeah. Nobody told me this game is just Metroid Prime in a dark fantasy world. If mm. y'all had described it like that, I would have been like, yeah, because that's what it is. Like, it is super Metroid Prime in terms of how, like, the Firelink Shrine is like where Samus lands on Talon 4 and everything else is kind of in a big circle from yeah. that that extends and you're you're always going back to that kind of main hub area for different reasons um, but it's it's not linear it's 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 obviously a metroidvania kind of thing but it is very metroid prime-esque in that way to me of specifically how it does it with a big 3D world and how much like my favorite thing in the game is just the sense of the world and exploring yeah. it and like the bosses are fun. I actually don't think the bosses are that hard so far. The one, the main ones I've fought. Although yeah. I tried fighting the wolf Sif, and then I was Ooh, like, "Yeah, that's a harder one." I'm gonna come back to that. Yes, because I don't need to yet. I don't need to beat him until much later in the game. But uh, that was the only one I've walked away from. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think like the general challenge of just starting in one area, trying to get through the next, learn it enough to find a bonfire, figure out where to go. I love all of that. It provides a lot of the same hit that a Metroid-style game does for me, especially the original Metroid Prime, in terms of it's, it's not a game that talks to you. There is very little open storytelling to it, obviously, but there is such continuity to the world that, you know, as you descend further down... There's all this weird shit in the underground. You go through Blight Town, and then under that is just the layer of lava and all this stuff, you know? Yeah. And you go into the castle, and you're climbing up a castle. And and that may sound, like, really obvious that there would be a, a continuity to this big 3D interconnected world, but it is... But most games don't do that. Like, they don't most, do it that yeah. well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I would say, like, Metroid Prime is a great game that I feel like very few games have truly taken from. I think the Batman Arkham games are one. Arkham yeah. Asylum, particularly. But Arkham Asylum is nowhere near as good as this, as Dark Souls or Metroid Prime. Dark Souls feels like a real, like... Because even Metroid Prime 2 and 3 don't fully do that. Yeah. So it's really cool on that level. And then, yeah, like, it sounds like a cliche, but you have to stick with it until you figure out what you're doing, and then you realize it's kind of brilliant, you well, know? Yeah, well, because it's that thing where, you know, Dark Souls is one of those rare games you play that, like... There, I mean, obviously now there's this whole like sort of subgenre of Souls-like games, but at the time, the only games that played like Dark Souls was Dark Souls and Demon Souls, right? Like they are kind of genres unto themselves. Oh, dogs are having fun over there. Uh, yeah. So what Sean is distracted by is Phoebe and Sunny are both girls. I want to be clear. That's but, you know that's fine. But Phoebe likes to mount Sunny and hump the air behind her. And it is, it's just an attention-getting thing, because they have nothing to make contact with there. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, they're both fixed. It's not sexual. That's they're what just, you think. They're just weird. 
They're just weirdos. Anyway, yes. you were talking about so, yeah, Dark so, Souls. So Dark, yeah, before I was distracted by the, the dog play. Um, yeah, so Dark Souls is a genre unto itself. And so you have to kind of unlearn a lot of things you've learned from playing other 3D action games throughout your whole life. Um, I have a story. Yes. And, and, and so that's, I think that's where the hump comes from. I think if you went into Dark Souls without having a lot of preconceptions about video games... Um, I think it would there wouldn't be that much of a hump, but when you go in and you're like, I've played a lot of games that kind of look like Dark Souls, and you try to play Dark Souls like it's one of those games, it's you just like, and with, this is what happened with me with Demon Souls. It's like your brain kind of twists a little bit. It is. It's, I mean, the funniest thing is that the graphics look a lot like Skyrim. You know, yes, yeah, which is the funniest thing in the goddamn world to me of of like the idea of someone picking up Dark Souls thinking it's like a Skyrim game <laughs> because the combat couldn't. I mean. At first blush, you would say, oh, this combat is similarly clunky in both of these, right? Sure, But then yeah. you actually get into it and know it, and like, oh, it's not clunky, it's just, it's its own goddamn thing. So my story with Dark Souls and what the journey I took with it was, I, I like, because I've started the game several times, because I had it on 360, like I said, through Games with Gold or a sale or whatever, and I would do like the Undead Asylum, and then Undead Berg would just always like, I couldn't get it, I couldn't figure it out, you mm-hmm. know? And... This time I pushed myself through and I got to the Bell Gargoyles, which yes. are the first proper huge boss of the game. Yeah, they're the boss at the end of the Undeadberg section. Yeah. yeah. And they are easily the hardest stretch of the game so far to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's no boss that is harder than them. You can't cheese them as easily as you can a lot of other bosses. Um, and I knocked my head against the Bell Gargoyles for pretty much a full day and a half. And that's in there somewhere where I made my cryptic tweet because I was just like... I just couldn't figure it out. Like, the, the bell gargoyles, if you don't know, it's this one big gargoyle that you're on the top of a church, which means you can fall off. It's one of the only bosses that does that, too, where they can just kick you off the fucking stage. Yeah, that, those, those are pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and they put it first for a reason. We'll get into that. So you've got that, and when you take the one bell gargoyle down to half health, a second one comes out with half health, and you have to fight two of them, and then they start ganging up on you, and you can just get fucked so easily by that. And it was really like... That is the point, and I've heard since, like I've been reading about this, that pretty much all FromSoft games do this in terms of putting something early on to like, this is the toll you have to pay to play our game. Yes. Like, learn how to play the game. And it did force me to, because the things I realized is like, oh, he doesn't naturally just move this slow. It's the equipment I have on. Because oh, I so you're saw- just using really heavy armor. It wasn't even that heavy. I think I was at a medium roll. Okay. And so there's the light, medium, and heavy roll, roughly, is the three. And the heavy one is like, you can't play the game with it. I'm sure someone has. Well, yeah, I mean, you can. It's just you have to go for a totally different kind yeah. of defensive strategy. Like, exactly. I am, I am definitely a very agile player uh, yeah. when I do Dark Souls, so I, I always go for the light roll. Right. Um, but I was at the medium roll, and that's really hard with the, the Bell Gargoyles, because the shield can help, but like you need to be agile for that fight, I think. And... I, I, you know, because in the menu it shows your equip load. And, like, I wasn't anywhere near the top of the equip load, so I didn't think I had a problem. Yeah. Because if you if you go into Dark Souls thinking, like, I've played Skyrim, I've played Dragon Quest, I've played every other RPG under the sun, if I see good armor, I just equip it. I'm looking at my stats, right? Yeah. No, not in Dark Souls, you don't. Yes, because, again, like, going to the Skyrim comparison, you know, in Skyrim you have, like, encumbrance. So, you know, you have only a certain amount of weight of items you can carry. And once you go over that weight, you basically can't really move. And so that's a way to kind of force you to kind of have to go back to town and take stock of what you have and everything. And Dark Souls at first blush has a thing that looks like it's that called equipment weight. Um, 
but if you're playing the game being like, as long as I'm under 100% equipment weight, I'm fine, right? Like, you, yeah, you're not getting it because depending on what percentage you're at, there are certain thresholds that determine it's... your light roll, medium roll, heavy roll. So, I mean, you have to do fucking math for this. Like, yes. I have pulled out my phone multiple times to open the calculator mm-hmm. because I, like, usually I can estimate it, but I'm like, I'm on the edge here. What is it? And it's like, I'm at 23.4%. I'm okay because 25% is the threshold for light roll. 50% is the threshold for medium roll. And anything over that, you're heavy roll and can barely move. And it's actually a really funny fucking animation when you do the heavy roll yes. with your full armor set. He just, like, tries to roll and just falls on his face. It's great. Um, but, yeah, so I had to figure this out. And I'm like, okay, I want to be faster. So I literally just stripped my armor off. Got it all off. Yep. I realized I was using the knight shield, which is this really cool shield you get early on. But it's only cool for how it looks. It's not that good a shield. And I learned this on the internet because people... There are plenty of people who will tell you what you're doing wrong in Dark Souls. Yes. Their whole community is dedicated to it. Yeah. Any shield that is not 100% physical protection is basically a garbage yep. shield you should just throw away in the garbage trash. And the knight shield doesn't do that, and it's too heavy. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. Someone said the heater shield is really good. Yes. So I'm going to go back to Undead Brick. I'm going to buy the heater shield. I'm going to farm some souls for a little bit. I'm going to be completely naked. Get used to just going light. Uh... And I, I got used to all of that. Now I, I think I wound up like what I wound up really settling on is like I would wear a little hat, like a little waist cloth, just for some little extra protection because it didn't change my movement speed. Yeah. But otherwise, I'm mostly naked. The the weapon I kind of fell into early on is just an axe. I have a battle axe. I'm still using that. I've upgraded it to a battle axe plus ten at this point. Well, that's something that is important to know is that with a couple of like very significant or like not significant like very extreme exceptions every single weapon in Dark Souls is viable like yeah. as because they're all like so the hand axe you start with as long as you keep on upgrading it like that's a totally fine weapon like obviously yeah. if it's sort of fit for the stats of your character yeah um, and I don't any even good. I don't even know if that axe is like what I would be best at playing Dark Souls but I've gotten good at the timing so it's like yeah. that's what I'm sticking with for now so I had a battle axe I got my heater shield and otherwise I'm pretty much naked and I go fight those bell gargoyles takes a couple of tries but i do it i go to and i'm like okay that was so hard because the other thing about the bell gargoyles is not just the battle but it's that where the bonfire is placed which is mm-hmm. down near andre the blacksmith you have to go up this you have to go up the stairs you have to go across a bridge fight three hollows there get rid of those little knights you go in there uh to the chapel you climb up the stairs there's a guy waiting to ambush you like a balder knight i think is who it is that guy's tough because especially you meet him on the stairs that's just a, you have to kind of lead him out then you go up and there's just a million of those little zombies that run around mm-hmm. those runners who I tried a strategy of just running past them but you get I have some clips for you Sean if you would like to see <laughs> okay, me fucking yes. that up but we can do that later um and then you get up to the Bell Gargoyle. So there's like a significant... like I, There's no other boss I've found so far in the game, at least, that puts you that far away from the boss with where you have to do that much of a sequence to get to it. Yeah, and that one is... like All, all of the boss runs are technically... It's possible for you to run past enemies. That one is definitely the hardest of, of all the ones that I've, I've yeah. played, which is basically all of them. Because like I did a Quilag yesterday, who is in Blighttown. Blight, it's super easy to run past everything in Blighttown. Yeah. Um, everyone said Blighttown was hard. Blighttown was fucking easy. Blighttown is the area of the game where the frame rate is like 10 okay. frames a second. Like, that's why Blighttown is hard, is okay. because the frame rate is shit, and that's the area where you get poisoned, so it just pisses yeah. you the fuck off when you get poisoned because the frame rate was bad. That's funny. Yeah, I, I loved Blighttown, actually. It's one of my favorite parts of the game so far, but it's it runs exactly the same as everything else on yeah. Switch, which is very nice. 
Um, again, it's a it's a very good port if you can just say it's like it's like what you played in the past, but with everything fixed. Uh-huh. You know. Um, so yeah, uh, what was I saying though? But yeah, so you have those those bell gargles. It was really tough. I didn't know if I felt satisfied or just like spiteful towards the game at that point. I put it down. It was like one in the morning. I go to bed. I wake up, and all I want to do is play Dark Souls. And and that's when I knew it was just like okay. I'm into it, and and from there I started exploring more areas of the game, and as I said, I love the exploration component, and just, because I also think the hardest parts are just getting around and navigating and learning, okay, there's an enemy here and here, and what are the best ways to defeat them, and and getting enough of a good strategy down that you can repeat it, and you can open up all the cool little shortcuts and stuff, like, I love, there's that bonfire in Undeadburg that you come back to about a billion times yeah. because there are so many shortcuts that open up to it and it is a viable bonfire to do a million different things from. And I just... That's the kind of stuff that when a game does that, it's it's the Metroid player in me of yeah. like, oh, I kicked down the ladder and now this ladder... Oh my God, that's so cool, you know? And it's all over the place and it gives me this significant, satisfying challenge. It's so interesting to me. And, and I think what I like now in retrospect about the Bell Gargoyles is it forced me to sit down... Pull the hood off the game and start like messing around inside until I figured out, okay, I know what I'm doing. I'm not good at the game, but I know how to play it, and that's really satisfying. And as you say, Sean, there's nothing else like it. There's like other things that like like I said, Metroid Prime doesn't play like it, but it's got an overall like aesthetic similarity and stuff and, and world building similarity, but overall there's no single experience like it. And so it's really cool now. To be into it and going through these areas and sends fortress like it was a motherfucker. Mm-hmm. It was satisfying when I got to that goddamn bonfire, which they are such dicks in sends uh, fortress. You have yeah. to jump off a little cliff to get to the fucking bonfire. Right, yeah, you have to take damage to get to the bonfire, which I love. There's the whole thing in Sense Fortress with the boulder that rolls down, and you can get up to. You have to at some point get up to the area where you can turn where the boulder's gonna go. Yeah, yeah. No, hey, turns out Dark Souls is a really good fucking game. It's right? a really good fucking game. I mean. Man, it's also... Some other things I really love now that I'm playing it. Um, I think it's hilarious how you die a lot, but it is a persistent world. Like, you can't undo mistakes you make because a lot of things are permanent. Like, there is the big hat mage you meet in Sen's Fortress who you can Mm -hmm. free. Yeah. And my finger slipped and I hit him with my axe. Did you kill Big Hat Logan? I didn't kill him, but he won't talk to me now and he'll try to kill me. And I don't know if there's a way to reverse that. I don't rem- like because like that shit is different in like all the games of okay. like I don't remember if Dark Souls how or if you can um, turn a hostile NPC yeah. back to to neutral. It it made me very sad because there's just there's no way to go back. Like it's a game where like your choices have fucking consequences. Yep. Um, so yeah, big hat logo. I don't use magic, so it's not a huge problem. Yeah, but- I never used magic in those games either. So yeah. yeah. I, I only like Big Hat Logan because his name is Big Hat Logan because he wears a big hat. I know. Because I've been reading about him on the loading screens. They, they have all the lore yes. stuff. So, yeah. Uh, that was kind of funny. I, I do, speaking of magic, though, I am already excited to play the game again someday. Mm-hmm. Because I want to experiment with all the other ways I could play it. Like, it's very clearly this giant playground with a million ways to do it. And that excites me a lot. Yeah. Uh, I also love the online component. Just the little thing right, of like yeah. exploring the world and having on the ground people will have left messages. I am one hundred percent serious. Metroid Prime Four should take that. Oh yeah, it no, should yes. borrow that. It should do that because it's not even for me about like the warnings about boss strategy and stuff don't help much because it's so individual to the player, you know. Mm-hmm. But like, hey, there's a fake wall here or ambush ahead or things like that. It just 
it kind of makes you feel part of this community, even though it is like I don't get into a lot of the like PvP stuff in it, and that kind of annoys me when I'm when I'm human for a moment, basically just so I can kindle a bonfire yeah. and then someone comes in and kills you me, which invaded. totally happened this morning. Uh, I would say it's funny. I was about to save and quit. Someone invades. I can no longer save and quit. And I'm like, guess I better go die because this guy knows more about this fucking game than me. Yeah, because that's actually what I was going to ask was how um, vibrant the Switch community feels for Dark Souls Remastered because that's something where. I feel like if you go back to that game now on like the Xbox 360, I imagine it would be probably hard to find yeah. people that invade you and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, every time I've gone human, I've I've either gotten offers to I've seen like the soapstones on the ground to go invade or be invaded, so that's clearly there's some activity there. There's lots of messages and that's stuff. Yeah, so it seems good. Um, I assume the game sold well on it. I've seen a lot of discussion about it. I know when it came out, it was near the top of the charts. So yeah, it's. It's a great game. I love it. You know, one of the things I am trying to do this year is catch up on a couple significant games from the decade I missed because we will be doing our top 10 of the decade at some yeah. point. And this would be... I would feel remiss if I never played Dark Souls in the 2010s. Yeah, I mean, because it is one of the most important, like, influential yeah. games of this decade, uh, hands down. So Yes, and it's it also is one of those lessons of how generations are not defined by hardware. Because mm -hmm. Dark Souls is really clearly one of the, like like first games of this generation mm -hmm. I feel like even though Dark Souls 1 and 2 technically launched on the 360 those feel like this generation games yeah because this generation was the one that was impacted because those games yeah. came at the very end of like specifically Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2 came at the end of the 360 PS3 generation and so all the lessons about like difficulty and trusting the player all of those got sort of pushed onto this generation and you can see its influence in everything from like Witcher 3 to um, even like the modern God of War and Spider-Man mm -hmm. I would say like those games are Impacted by the way that Dark Souls designs its like combat and things about those kinds of things. I also want to say it's a fucking funny game. Mm -hmm. I never really realized. I never knew that. I've never heard that talked about. It's not necessarily even laugh out loud funny. It's just there is a sly sense of humor about it in a lot of places. Like just in some of the enemy designs and in some of the little things that happen. The way the NPCs talk. Like one of my favorite little jokes is that you spend this significant chunk of the early game. You have to ring these two bells. And you go through a lot of hell ringing those bells. Yep. You ring the bells. This big giant pulls up the gate for you. And you get to the top of that fortress. You can just kill that giant. Yep. You just kill him. And then take a shit. And he gives you like 500 souls. Like he's just a little mini enemy. And it's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's cool about those games. is You, you can murder basically everything in that game if you want to. Yeah. No, so, so if I'm at Sen's Fortress, how far in the game am I? Um, like a third, maybe. maybe Jesus, less than this that. game is yeah. long. <laughs> yeah, like it's 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 because it's been so long since I played it that I think the next place you go to is Anor Londo, which is like yeah. kind of once you finish that, that's basically the halfway point of the game. Okay, so yeah, yeah. So because I've been, I have like a little walkthrough I'm checking in with every so often because there's like I don't know how you play this for the first time without looking yeah. stuff up. I mean, that's how I play those games. Yeah. Is I have I will typically like go through an area and then like scan through a walkthrough of the area I just went through to make sure there's nothing like really huge I missed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And and I think on Orlando's next, and I just but like the the table of contents is so big. I'm like, this is a huge game. Uh, are the other ones like Bloodborne and stuff that long? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. no, they're all Jesus. like forty to fifty hour games. Like, I mean, it depends on how how deep you get into it. Right. Like, obviously, like there are people that have probably played fucking Dark Souls like twenty fucking times at this point. Yeah. You know? um, but yeah. So and, and now I'm mapping out in my head where I go next with FromSoft, and I feel like the natural next step would just be to play Bloodborne. Yeah. And then maybe Sekiro and just get a taste of each of their IPs. 
That's and what it, I would do. And if I want to go back to Dark Souls 2 and 3, get there eventually. Yeah. I know 3 is really good. Yeah, like in Dark Souls 2, because, well, one, Dark Souls 2 has the Scholars of the First Sin thing where they, they put the DLC out for that game, and then when they updated it for the PS4 and Xbox One, they rejiggered a lot of the game. Um, So I don't know... I, from what I understand, like Dark Souls 2 is a pretty significantly different game from when I played it okay. um, at launch. But I'm one of the people that really did not like Dark Souls 2 that much, but there is a like cult sort of fan base for Dark Souls 2 that think that Dark Souls 2 is the best one. I, I see their arguments for why, but I, I'm not a big fan. I would want to try it at least. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that's going to frustrate you about Dark Souls 2 is the same thing that frustrated me is that it does not do the big interlocking world thing. It, oh. It's more of like the same thing that Demon's Souls did, which is kind of Mega Man-esque where you have... Instead of it being a big interlocking world, it's like a hub with like spokes that go off it that just go like kind of off in their own direction, and then you come back, but they don't loop in on each other, um, which is what Dark Souls One does. And three, I assume. Yeah, Dark Souls Three does. Dark Souls One does that. Dark Souls Three does that. Um, Sekido does that. Um, I think Dark Souls One is the one that does it the best. Like yeah. that's one of the reasons why people like that one so much is because that it's... I think has the most intricate like self-enfolding world design of any of these games it's the metroid prime thing like yeah. it's why the metroid the metroid prime sequels are i love them they're masterpieces you can it's hard to do that multiple times yeah. it just really is it's one of the hardest things to do in gaming it's why like you know symphony of the night is the castlevania like that that people keep talking about is because i'm sure there have been other good ones in that style but you can kind of the first time you do it is almost always going to be the one that like you did it best in some way yeah you know um, but yeah I'm really enjoying it I'm looking forward to the nice thing is because I'm behind on these other than Sekiro they're all under $20 now and Bloodborne yeah. I think I have on PS Plus because it was out it was a PS year. Plus game yeah yeah so uh, I might buy it physically anyway just because it's like $15 because it's, yeah. it's a greatest hits one just in case I don't have PS Plus at some point. But yeah, uh, I am excited to play more of these. But I also don't want to get ahead of myself. i got a lot more Dark Souls left. Yes, and you make sure you do, because I assume the DLC um, must, there, yeah. Yeah, must be wrapped in. Make sure you do that. It is, I don't know if they maybe changed it or not, but um, the DLC was like ridiculously, stupidly hard to access. That like That's one of those things where like you should just, once you get through um the moon base i forget what the area is called like this forest area with the moon and there's like this moth after that i think dark root garden yes dark root garden yeah all that i've done the hydra you have to fight yes i fought the hydra so okay. i think i'm i the, the the walkthrough i was following told me to just go do it and i i love that hydra fight yeah that that area is really cool and that yeah. area that i think it's where you fight the hydra is like around that area is where you go back to access the DLC. So make sure you look up once you get a little bit deeper. I think probably yeah. post Anne Orlando you can do it because the okay. game kind of shifts a little bit after Anne Orlando. You have to do the DLC stuff because that's the to me the best part of the first Dark Souls. The DLC thing is fucking amazing. You're the second person to tell me that this week, so okay, I yes. I know it's so true. Good. The yeah. Arturius boss fight is one of my favorite boss fights. That's so. that's awesome. Yeah, um, and I also just want to say I love playing it on Switch. It's really you wouldn't think Dark Souls is necessarily a great fit for handheld, but, you know, there's a lot of times when, like, you're grinding or you're figuring shit out. And sure. I've had fun this week where I'm playing it on my handheld and I've got an episode of Star Trek on my PC because I'm watching the TNG again. Mm -hmm. And it's just fun to kind of go through Dark Souls. I don't, like, usually do big boss fights like that way. Yeah. But uh, I really like it that way. I only have had access to my Joy-Cons because I didn't bring my Pro Controller with me on the plane because uh, I could only fit so much and yeah. I needed to bring underwear and stuff. And it plays great on the Joy-Cons. That has not been a difficulty for me, except I have sad news. Mm -hmm. This this morning and last night I realized my right Joy-Con is succumbing to a problem I've heard other people have called Joy-Con Drift, which Ooh. is where the right thumbstick is starting to just do its own goddamn thing. 
which makes Dark Souls very hard to play. Not as bad as if it were the left thumbstick. Yeah, no, because that's, you know, you definitely don't want the camera shifting around. But, like, with the lock-on mechanic, that probably mitigates it, that. It does, except in Sense Fortress when you've got these tiny little bridges you're running across. Uh, oh, and yeah. if And if the, the Joy-Con just decides you're going to go in a circle right now. Mm-hmm. So I am now trying to figure out how I get the money together to buy new Joy-Con. Because, yes, because they are not cheap. They're not cheap. Um... And I'm out of... Obviously, it's been two years. It's out of warranty. I wouldn't expect it to still be in warranty. Uh, apparently, the issue is just that, like, this can happen to every controller. Dust can get inside the ports, mm-hmm. and, like, that'll mess up the, the control stick. The problem is that the Joy-Con come in contact with more dust and stuff because you take them out in the world. They're handheld controllers. And you know, just because it's a little smaller, everything's a little harder. There are ways to fix it yourself, but I am not one of those people who likes to tear open my controllers and replace sticks and stuff. Yeah, that's something to me is, like, a totally last resort. Yeah. Like, like I would go to that extent, but like it's it has to be something where it's like uh, I really don't want to spend the money, yeah. and I I really need this controller to work. Yeah, if I can wrestle the money together, I am happy to buy new ones. I have probably played thousands of hours on these things. Like yeah. that's it's okay. Like like every console I've ever bought, I eventually get a second controller for you know. Mm, yeah. Um, but it's it's also like I think it's hilarious this happened to me while playing Dark Souls. That's like that's the game that yes. would do it right. This this is the, the real Dark Souls starts here. Yeah. And there, there have been rumors they might get around to doing Dark Souls 2 on Switch, which sounds like it could be feasible since that was also a 360 game. Yeah, since that was a 360 game, yeah, I imagine yeah. you could do that. Um, I would love that. Because um, like I said, it is. I do feel a little spoiled being able to take it kind of like portable as, as, a, as a fun way to do it. I would have to like adjust if I were playing like Bloodborne or something, which is only on the TV. But uh, I've taken my first steps into a brave new world, and I got over the hump. And I now, Sean, I can say I understand it. Like Even if I stop here... When you talk about it or something. Because that's why I wanted to play it. Is that I host a fucking video game podcast. This is undoubtedly one of the most important genres of the decade. Yes. And I've been talking about these games for like five fucking years or something on this podcast. And, and kind of every time I sort of try to push you a little bit to play one of them. I know. I'm in, I'm in it though. Yep. I'm finally. In it. I'm in it to win it. I gotta fight a golem next. Thank God. So yeah, now I'm excited to, once you're done with Dark Souls, we can talk about Dark Souls 1, and then, yeah. I'm, and then we'll see where we go from yes. there. I, you, I really do want you to try to play through Sekido before the year is over, because I think I that would yes. be, yeah, that would be, a, yeah. it'd be fun to talk about that game I, while it's relevant. I really do, if I can, this year, I would love to hit Bloodborne and Sekiro, because Bloodborne, same for like the decade thing, but also it's one of the only significant PS4 exclusives I haven't played. Yeah, and it's one of the best. Yeah, so... Um, both of those and I you know it's one of the nicer things about this being a quieter year yeah I mean that's what I'm doing you know yeah. I just spent like three weeks playing fucking Mafia 3 you know and, and I'm glad because yes. no one else no other no one else is talking about Mafia 3 right yeah, now nobody yeah there's no other podcast that's talking about fucking Mafia 3 and Dark Souls 1 at the same time and well, I'm, I'm about to go start playing uh, Devil May Cry 4 is probably the next I'm going to get into yeah well two female dogs hump each other yes off in the distance which you probably could hear and I'm sorry about that are we done with Dark Souls? Because we're done with Dark Souls. The, because, because I want to now move on to we're talking about something that's you know way out of date and not relevant anymore. Now let's talk about Game of Thrones. Oh, great! Okay, do, let's do our Game of Thrones checkup because I realized I didn't talk about that in my stuff, um, other than poking fun at you for the crossbow thing and the Joffrey bullshit. Um, How far are you? I'm like I because I I spent a lot of time a couple of days ago watching, so I'm like a couple of episodes into season three. Like I burned okay. through season two very quickly, um, and. I'm kind of waffling. Like, there's a part of me that, like, I think on some nights watching Game of Thrones, I could make the tweet that you made of, is everybody playing a practical joke? Because I'm not sure this is... Like, Game of Thrones is a TV show that has moments of brilliance, 
but most episodes are not that great. Um, it's very because it's not constructed episodically. No, and not at fucking all. It's driving it crazy. I will say this: season two is the worst for that. They get significantly better at it in season three. Yeah, but I will say one thing, and this is like almost what made it harder. Because again, I think I'm at episode four um, okay. in season three because it was Jamie just got his hand cut off. Yeah. Um, and then they play like a weird rock song after that, which was a very questionable choice to me. Because very it's a great scene, and if it had just played out in the silence, that would have been good. Yes, and yeah. then it's just that it's just you totally break this. It's like I don't know. They thought that was a dumb fucking choice. Um, but one thing that I think made me slow down really hard going into season three was one, I've just been watching some old Godzilla movies because, of course, I am. Um, and then in two. The penultimate episode of season two, which is the one that has the it's the big battle where Stannis, yeah, of the and Stannis Baratheon goes and invades King's Landing, and Tyrion organizes the defense, and like that episode is fucking amazing. It's a great episode. Is so much better than anything else that has been in Game of Thrones. And to go from that episode to immediately another Game of Thrones ass episode, the last episode of season two, where it feels like I watched fifty minutes of television and like ten minutes of stuff happened, drive me. Up the fucking wall. I was so annoyed. Season two is the structurally most questionable of the good seasons, at least, because there's a lot of, in the, like, just taking from the source material, there are several stories that don't advance a ton in book two, but are interesting stories. And what they should have done in season two of the show, and people said this at the time, I said this at the time, is like Daenerys' story should not have been across 10 episodes. No. They should have done the Daenerys episode. Told mm-hmm. her story in 60 minutes, and Amelia Clark would be in one episode that year. Yes. Jon Snow should have been in one episode that year, and yes. it would be the Jon Snow episode. And then everything else you could just stick in King's Landing and, and the surrounding areas, because that's the good stuff in season two. And, like, yeah, Blackwater is great because they, they do the focus. Yeah, and it's the only episode of Game of Thrones that doesn't, like, every five minutes cut away to some bullshit that yeah. has nothing to do with what we just were watching. Because that is, at its worst, the problem with Game of Thrones is that, in the early years at least, is that you have to... In a book, you can do this, like, you can do 20 or 25 pages and it's a chapter and you feel, like, good about what you just read. But if you do five minutes with, let's say, Tyrion, and then you do five minutes with Danny, and then five minutes with John. You just inherently in TV can't advance the plot that much. How much better would Game of Thrones be if it was 20 episode seasons where each um, episode was 20 minutes long? And you could just, here's, here's a Danny episode. Here's a 20 minute story about what Daenerys Targaryen is doing in Essos. Like, here's a 20 minute episode about what is happening in King's Landing. Here's a 20 minute Jon Snow episode. Man, they never would have been able to do it, but that would no. have been great. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, I know that's like, obviously, there's like the well, way that American TV is produced. In, I, like, I will say, it, they do get, it, in my mind at least, in season three and four, they get better at focus and thematic connections through episodes. And they don't do the Blackwater thing a ton more. They only do that once or twice a year if they do it at all. But like, I because season four is my favorite season you're coming up on and I do think they manage to start doing like they'll do like instead of like we see Tyrion three times in an episode we'll see him once for 15 minutes and just get it a little more and you know this is the part of the show where I actively sympathize for the showrunners because it's tough when you've got 10 hours and these big books that switch around a bunch what do you do I think season two is the nadir of like how they structured it early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also season two doesn't have Sean Bean anymore. And that is the thing is that Sean Bean you could just put as the protagonist in season one. And so you felt like there was a center you kept coming back to. Yeah. Tyrion is kind of that in season two. And Tyrion stuff is the best stuff that year. But By far, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I will say like Tyrion, like, because all of Peter Dinklage's stuff in season one is good. But like there's not much there. Like he's a cool character that's kind of on the side. 
Um, season two, he is like the saving grace of that season. Every time they cut back to him, him um, and Cersei together. Yeah, I mean Cersei. I feel like Cersei really doesn't do anything right now. Like I'm sure that's going to start changing, and I feel it's starting to change. But she's very much stuck in this mode of like. And this is the problem with Game of Thrones is that every character is stuck in whatever mode they're in for ten fucking hours. Um, is it's like oh like. I'm the queen, but I can't really control Joffrey, but I'm not also trying to do anything to hurt Joffrey because I love my children so much. And she's just been doing that for, like, more than 10 hours at this point. Um, and, like, that... And that's the thing that is by far the most frustrating. And, and any time they cut to... Like... How long was Jon Snow wandering in the fucking tundra with that lady? That it must have been, like, seven weeks or so. Like, it was ridiculous. It is the weirdest thing in season two because it's... It's one chapter in the book. Like, they really, like, decided... Like, John is not in book too much. Danny is not in book too much. There actually is more story for both of them, though, than they do on the show. Hmm. They do less of the story from the book with both of them, but elongate it over more weeks. It's very strange, all yeah. the decisions made. Yeah, Egret becomes a good character, but it is very weird the way they do it in the show. We're just, we're gonna see five minutes of this each week. Or, like, sometimes you just go an episode without seeing it, and then you do go to the next episode, and you cut back to it, and it's like... Haven't like hasn't like two weeks passed since the last time we cut to this storyline? Like, what the fuck is even going on? And like, there's just a lot of characters that I think suffer a lot from be having been stuck in like a stasis mode for like a season plus. Um, and like now they're finally doing stuff with Jamie, but for the longest, like, other than now having had his had his hand cut off, the only fucking thing Jamie Lannister had done in the goddamn show is be snarky about Robert Baratheon. He fought um, Ned Stark very briefly, and that was, like, the most exciting thing he did. And then he got captured off-screen. And he was captured for an entire season, and they just did the same scene with him, like, five or six times, which is one of the Starks, either Caitlyn or um, um, Rob, go and talk to him and threaten him a little bit, and then they leave and don't do anything about it. And they do that exact scene, like, four or five times. It's like, what are you fucking doing? I don't... If you have no... If there's not going to be any forward momentum made in this subplot, don't cut to the fucking subplot because there's so much shit on your plate that it drives me crazy when they start wasting time like that. I totally get it. Uh, Jamie's not in book two. He just doesn't appear. Like, because... Um, Rob is not a POV character in the books. Okay. Jamie is not a POV character until book three. So Jamie is purely background. Like he intersects with, like you see him through Ned and Tyrion a little bit in book one. He's off screen in book two because Catelyn is our only POV character with Rob. And in book two, she's mostly away from Rob. So we just know that Jamie is captured, but we never go there. And then in book three, Jamie becomes a POV character and his arc starts. He's just not a character before then. Which again, you can get away with in a book very easily. Yeah. The problem is in the show, you have to have Jamie there. You have to have an actor there. If you told the actor, you're not going to be in season two, but just don't take any other jobs and wait for season three. That's, that, you know what I mean? That's hard. Yeah. They probably still could have done it better. But, like, or just eaten the costs and, like, paid him scale or something for ten episodes. Yeah, or, like, I mean, for me, the answer is, as someone who has not read the book so has no, like, nothing to hinge that on, is, like, be more creative with your adaptation at some point. Yes. Because, like, I'm, like, Game of Thrones is, is always a really well-made show. And you can definitely, it gets much better in season two where they get much more of the budget to execute on some of the stuff they're trying to execute on. But it's always really well-directed. Like, the scenes are nice. The acting's always fantastic. Generally speaking, the writing within the scenes is really well done. It's just, like, as an episodic show, um, like, it's just not one. And, it, and it's something that it feels like some of, like, the worst stuff you would see in, like, the Netflix Marvel shows like it's the exact same thing of like you have 
an A plot that's very interesting, but you're honestly spending more plot time on the B, C, and D plots just to sort of remind us that it's happening. But you only cut to those for about three minutes, and you spend those three minutes having to catch audiences up to... And this is kind of where Daenerys Targaryen is at. And you you only spend like maybe 30 seconds actually moving that story forward in any way. Daenerys in season two is... I've poured Amelia Clark. Yeah. Just I want my dragons! Give me my dragons! I want my dragons! Yeah, like she... she in. All of her plot is just in the first episode, the last episode of that season. Because it's her arriving at the city at the beginning. It's like, cool. And then she's just in that city doing nothing it's, for the whole You know, season. I didn't read the books until I think it was after season four. Um, which was the right time to do it. Because then they went off books and it became bad. Um, but, like, it was funny when I got to book two. And I'm like, oh, Danny had way more story in this that they didn't adapt. It's so bizarre. Danny's like, Danny has many fewer chapters in book two than she does in any other book. There is more interesting stuff that they... It's kind of like with Bran. They just choose not to adapt it, and then, but they also don't choose not to do stuff with Danny. So it's like, we're just going to do the, I don't know, the cornflakes version of Danny here, and it's going to be very bland. Yeah. So... But I will say again, that Blackwater episode is really fucking cool. amazing. And, and that, that is both, like, kind of the reason why I'm still trucking along with the show, but also the reason why I've slowed down so much is it hurt so hard to go from that episode to another episode again. Like put the problems of the show to me in such a like clear focus when it's like oh when the show can sit down and focus on one thing for 50 minutes it's fucking amazing yes. when it has to bounce between everything else like a crazy pinball story it's and that is the rough. one that is the one good thing about the last few seasons is that they've pared down the cast and locations enough that they stop jumping around a lot like season seven and eight almost never they don't have to do that really um like season eight is purely all one location episodes they're bad one location episodes but yeah I mean the other thing about Blackwater though Sean is Blackwater is so good they will spend the rest of the series chasing that dragon with other battle episodes and there are other there are other really good ones there's none as good as Blackwater in part because Tyrion is not the heart of any of them and and because Tyrion is the heart of it it's all about the strategy it's not about the spectacle yeah, and, and then it's also about... It's the culmination of his story of going from someone that because he's a dwarf, nobody respects him. Yeah. Um, to, to going from that to being the person who, like, gives that rousing speech to try to go take the beach and flank the enemy and all. Like, it's a culmination of his whole character arc. And, and that's one of the things that's frustrating. He's like, he was kind of the only character that really had much of a character arc in that season. Because yeah. basically everyone else, Arya, um, fucking Sansa... God, I cannot describe to you how utterly disappointed I was to discover that Sansa did not leave with the Hound at the end of that episode. And yeah. she is still... I don't understand it. I don't know why they did that. Fucking Theon Greyjoy is a character... I just do not understand why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, me too. They, Theon, they... they I, I hate to say this again. Makes more sense in the books. Theon is about to enter the worst plot on Game of Thrones by a fucking country yeah. mile, and he will be in there for several yeah. seasons. Right now, he, I think he, he's he's still being tortured. He the last will be time for the entirety of season three. Well, fantastic! Literally, it's... every it's. I love season three, except every episode they cut back to do more sadism with Theon because Benioff and Weiss are fucking weirdos who really like torturing. Yeah, and and they either. should write a twenty four revival. They'd be good at it. Yeah, and it's it's particularly surprising because presumably all the stuff about Theon betraying Rob Stark is all stuff is in the books and so they knew it was all coming so they could have foreshadowed it and built yep. up to it naturally and they just chose not to they yep. just chose to be like nope like he's 
like they're like 100% okay. The small hits from the beginning of season one that Theon Greyjoy is like unsatisfied with his position with the Starks is just not there. Everybody loves him. Like Rob treats him like a brother. It's fantastic. And then he leaves to go to that island and he just goes fucking when, crazy. When season one aired, most people, including me, thought Theon was just another Stark brother. Because they don't go into it. Like the yeah. history of who he... Like the books right away get into who the Greyjoys were, why Ned took Theon as a ward, all this stuff. But they don't do that in season one. So it gets to season two, everyone was just fucking confused. And again, in the books, Theon becomes a POV character and you hear inside his head like, I've always resented the Starks because they took me against my will. And it's like... Yeah, that's not something I believe in the slightest on the show. Like, they've not communicated... Like, because I... Mostly because I have heard the name... um, I just forget. Greyjoy. Yeah, Theon Greyjoy. Yeah, Greyjoy. I've heard that because I also know because you talked about the guy who has the magic fleet. You're on Greyjoy's magical mystery fleet. Fucking hate that guy. Yeah. So like, so I I've heard the Greyjoy thing around. So when they called him Theon Greyjoy, I kind of probably paid more attention than most people who hadn't read the books were in season one. And so I knew that that was a thing, but I like did not think that he was going to leave the Starks because they just don't build up to that. And now that he's saying repeatedly like, no, I always despised him, it rings 100% fucking false. Yeah, it does. I'm, I am curious to see what you think about seasons three and four. They're based on the best book. Both season four is my favorite season, although it's got some rough stuff in the middle where Jon Snow, they do a full-on anime filler arc with Jon Snow. And I, I want to see if you can spot what the filler is. Because I mean, it's... if you told me that his thing of wandering around the tundra with this lady was an anime filler arc, I would have believed. I mean, it is because, again, it's one chapter yeah. in the book. <laughs> so, like, you know. Um, yeah, anyway. But I mean, like, full-on, it wasn't in the book at all. And they do some anime filler to kill time with Jon Snow. But there's good stuff coming up. I'm, I'm, these are very fascinating conversations for me. Because you're also getting to watch it kind of detached from the hype. It's all mm-hmm. in the past now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun to see it through these eyes. There's good stuff coming up. I'm the, and I am enjoying it. Like, I've, you know, I've, I've, it's, it feels good to be able to vent this. Because it is an extraordinarily frustrating show. But, again, yeah. like, moment to moment, it's usually very good... It's then when it just starts doing the thing of where, like, oh, I'm really interested in this plotline, and then you cut to fucking Daenerys doing nothing. It's like, oh I will my God, say, why are you doing this? You are having the reaction, though, maybe a little more extreme. Everyone said that at the end of season two. Okay. Like, like that, like, this was cutting too much. Blackwater was so good, do more of that. And, and the showrunners knew it. They take it a little bit to heart here and there. Um, there's really good stuff. It's like season three and four, if you want characters changing and not being in stasis, that is what these next two seasons are completely. Uh, and if you like Tyrion, you you have about if you're at season three episode four, you have sixteen more episodes of him being a good character, and then they're <laughs> going to throw his fucking plot arc out the goddamn window and just waste uh, Peter Dinklage for about four seasons. That's sad because he is my favorite character on the show yeah. at this point. Yeah, I am like I'm and I'm I am very excited for a lot of. I want some people to die. And I know that that's a, a lot of death. Game of up. Thrones has a reputation for killing off characters. It's like I feel like there's a good set of characters that I hope get killed off soon because fucking because some of them like Joffrey. I feel like his story has been played out, and like I want, I just want to see him die. Um, well, I won't say anything. I know but... that I know he does die at some point because yeah. nobody talks about him past like season four or something like that. So maybe he just reforms and he goes and joins a church and he goes he goes and did, like uh, this is one of my favorite things about the show is they constantly just like oh just go join the wall just go just go join the Night's Watch or whatever whenever anybody's in trouble it's like oh we'll send you to the Night's Watch um, and only about like maybe ten percent of the characters that talk about actually get that to happen most of them just get killed yes. Uh, all right, so let's go ahead and move on, Sean. You want to do some news? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? Two video game reveals. Okay, yeah. Well, one we already knew about, but Death Stranding 
We got a new trailer. We'll talk about the trailer in a minute. Less, more surprising to me than anything in the actual trailer oh, yeah. is the release date. It's coming this year. It's November 8th of this year. Sean, we did a draft at the beginning of this year where we yep. took a bunch of games we thought would not come out in 2019 and drafted which ones we thought were most likely to actually come out in 2019. Death Stranding was on your list. Oh. You had it as the seventh seed. I had Last of Us Part Two as the third seed. I'm fucked yes. this year because this pretty much confirms Last of Us 2 is a 2020 game. Yeah, because when this news came out, Jason Schreier sort of put out there like, oh yeah, like the Last of Us Part 2 date has been pushed like internally to early 2020. Yeah, and I think normally we would make the joke about, haha, it's going to get delayed. I don't think it will. Sony was not going to announce this game for a release date until they knew they were good and ready. Yeah, I agree. I feel like, especially because... The way they've marketed it, they could release this game fucking whenever. Like, this is not a game. It's not like Anthem or something like that, where if there, it feels like there's this concern and pressure to get the game out as soon as possible. This Death Stranding feels like, nope, you put it out when you want to fucking put it out. Yeah. And if they're saying a release date, yeah, I'm with you. I'm fairly confident they're going to hit it. I am, I am excited we get to do the Death Stranding episode of the podcast sooner rather than later. Yes. Because it will be a goddamn trip. Um, yeah, so... Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. We said this off the air. This trailer is like the most Death Stranding trailer, both in length and in content. Yep. I loved every goddamn second of watching this trailer. It also made me pretty confident it's not going to be a good game. Yeah, it's it's the same. The Death Stranding arc for us has been like kind of the same all the way through. That's like, we really excited about the trailers. We love the trailers. And every time we see more of the game, we become more confident that it's probably not going to be very good. Yeah, because... The like, there's a lot of like cinematic stuff in this trailer that is awesome and hilarious, like Mads Mikkelsen singing a lullaby to the baby and just things like that. And you've got multiple art house directors as characters, like Guillermo del Toro <laughs> yeah. and Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah, which I feel like that was the new reveal because we kind of knew because we had Del Toro in one of the earlier trailers, although yeah. they never said if he was actually playing a character in the game or not. Now we know that he is, but yes, now we have. He made Drive, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, so we have that now. Nicholas Winding Refn. Um, we have Leah Sado. Her character is just. Named Fragile, which feels like that is the most Hideo Kojima thing you could possibly do to your female lead is just literally name her Fragile. I mean, I, his, you have in Metal Gear Solid Five, he named a character a female character Quiet, who is the only significant female character in that game. Um, it says a lot about Metal Gear Solid Five. If you don't know who Quiet is, YouTube Quiet, but make sure your you know fucking safe search is off or she will not come up. You know, it's a popular uh, choice for sexy cosplay. Let's just say that. You know, it's it's a thing. It's, or, one of, it's one of the only costumes you don't have to change to make it sexy cosplay. Yeah, no, seriously, it's it's bad. Um, and so you had Quiet and MGS5, which just legendarily bad female representation. Just like the some of the worst in the modern era of video games, without a doubt. Um, and so then you go to this trailer and then he has that series of cuts where it's fragile, then mama... And then the other female character is, I'm pretty sure the main character's dead wife. And so, and I don't, I think her name was like Amelie. Amelie. Amelie, Amelie, something like that. Emily something. It's Amelie because it's a reference to the French movie. Because, of course it is, it's Hideo Kojima. Yes, and I think that's the the bionic woman is the one that plays Amelie. Yeah, Lindsay Wagner. Yes, and so, and they don't, obviously we don't know for sure who those characters are. I'm like 90% sure that's that's, uh, Sam Bridges' dead wife. Uh Um, So, so yeah, fragile mama, dead wife. Great. Of awesome. Course. Hideo Kojima really getting out on the limb, trying new things. Uh, you know, I've never gotten bizarre. the sense... I've never gotten the sense Hideo Kojima hates women. I don't think it's misogyny. It's just a deep and fundamental misunderstanding. Yes. It's like, it's like it's, they are aliens. It's, it's a misunderstanding and a just pure not giving a fuck. Yeah. Like, it's to, to such a ridiculous level. Um, 
And yeah, when when that title card came up that just said fragile, I just started fucking cackling because it's just one of course because her clothes because we had seen that character in the previous trailer and on her clothes is the word fragile and everyone just assumed that's like a weird fun visual thing because it's like you know on boxes when they're because it's the thing if they're transporting goods all over the place so it's like fragile that's funny oh that's literally just the character's name that's like she this is like her letterman's jacket from high school or something <laughs> just, that's her name it's just the fragile there you go yep uh but then we get actual gameplay in this trailer and i I gotta say, if I ever meet Hideo Kojima, I want to give him a high five for this choice. That the first piece of gameplay mm-hmm. we ever saw in Death Stranding is ladder. Put a ladder down. I love it. And yep. it, honestly, if that's the only gameplay we saw, I'd be very positive. Because I like that there's just equipment in this game where you get a big extendable ladder and go up a cliff. We're not doing free climbing. You just get a big metal ladder. I loved that. Yeah. Then you get a lot of the rest of it and it's like... There's just a full-on part of this where the character, where it looks like the person playing as Norman Reedus fucks up and like gets swamped by the bad yeah, guys. I mean, there's just what is like one of the funniest sequences of any gameplay trailer I've ever seen, which is him just running through this open field while all the other the other enemies are just like around him, hitting him with these like big sticks, and he's just not doing anything. And you're and I'm. It seems to me that it is just like the gameplay trailer trying to play something up as being dramatic because this is before you get the shot later in the trailer where you see that we can now confirm, as as I have always theorized, that Death Stranding is it's a fucking third person shooter because later on he has a rifle and there's the camera is over his shoulder and there's a fucking reticle in the middle of the screen and he's shooting something. Um. And I just assume that when you're actually playing the game, what will happen when you're running in the open field is you will take out a gun and just shoot those fucking guys and not just run around like an idiot and just start getting whacked. But it's the fucking most hilarious looking thing in the world. It's it's great. I mean, it is and it isn't a third person shooter because every piece of gameplay footage in this trailer looks like a different genre. Like it's but that's the, part of what makes it feel so incoherent to me. And and I I feel, and maybe I'm just totally wrong, and maybe the third-person shooting stuff will be a smaller component of this game than I'm expecting, but I am expecting that what they have done with all these trailers is try to avoid showing it being a third-person shooter as much as possible, because as soon as you do that, people know what the game is, because we've all played third-person shooters, and as soon as he starts shooting something with a fucking rifle, it's a third-person shooter. Like, it's it's like this game, in terms of the gameplay, the glimpses we get at it, looks very much like an MGS5-esque thing. Probably yeah. less stealth-focused, um, but all, like, the items he puts out and, like, the menus and the shooting, like, all of that looks a lot like Metal Gear Solid Five, and so... Which is fine. Yeah. Like, I mean, he just... It hasn't been that long since Metal Gear Solid Five, and he didn't get to finish the goddamn game, so, like, do whatever you want, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to think. I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited for it in the level of just, like, I do love the ambition. I, yeah. Look, Kojima is many things... I have never played a Kojima game that I would not say at the bare minimum was really fucking interesting. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. That's the word I would use for all of them are interesting. And, and I've played all of them. I've played every yeah. single Metal Gear Solid, except Peace Walker, which is... Which is my favorite one. That's, yeah. That's the, you know, I'm, I am that guy. I'm the guy who doesn't really like almost any of the Metal Gear Solid games except for Peace Walker that I very much enjoyed. So Yeah, so... And I played some of Peace Walker. I just didn't get that far into it. Um, it's very good. Yeah, so to close this segment though, Sean... Could you even put out a couple statements? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dramatic reading time. So this was on a signed picture of Norman Reedus in the game. Hideo Kojima, this is typed, he wrote, People have built, quote-unquote, walls and become accustomed to living in isolation. 
quote-unquote, Death Stranding is a completely new type of action game, where the player's goal is to reconnect isolated cities and a fragmented society. All elements, including the story and gameplay, are bound together by the theme of, quote-unquote, strand or connection. As Sam Porter bridges, you will attempt to, quote, bridge these divisions and in doing so create new bonds or, quote, strands with other players around the globe. Through your experience playing the game, I hope you'll come to understand the true importance of forging connections with others. Now please enjoy the latest Death Stranding trailer, Hideo Kojima. I love... There's a lot of things I love about that. Um, one, the the just... The name of the character being Sam Bridges and him talking multiple times about like bridging gaps between people and in the world is fucking hilarious. So so And although now it's like creating a scenario for me that's like... If that's what you're going to do, why can't it just be Jeff Bridges and you are playing as, like, the actor Jeff Bridges in this world where America has fallen to pieces and, you, and you're Jeff Bridges having to bridge the world back together? Because everybody loves Jeff Bridges. And if I were to ask for one person to, to reconnect the world when it has fallen apart that everyone can get behind, it would either be Tom Hanks or Jeff Bridges. And I believe both of them together make a co-op game. You're making me remember the my favorite part of the trailer, which is when Norman Reedus is in the White House with the president. Yes. And like we uh, that's when it hit me that oh god, we're getting a fucking Hideo Kojima game but with real actors. And so we're going to hear like world-class actors like you know like uh, Norman Reedus have to read this awful like faux Hollywood dialogue like yeah. Miss President there is no America anymore. Oh, man. President of jack shit. Yeah, President of jack shit. Okay, he also made this tweet, and I just have to read the tweet because it's so fucking good. The handprint, parentheses, palm, is an important icon in DS, Death Stranding. When you open the palm, you can hold the hand of other. When you close, it changes to fist that can exclude others. Both are inseparable. The palm can be compared to stick and rope. All caps. Tomorrow is in your hands. I have to say, Sean, people have, have speculated a lot, like, what would a liberal Trump be like? I don't know, but that would be their tweet. Yes. That is what liberal Trump puts on Twitter. Yes, it is like... The palm can be compared to stick and rope. <laughs> and here's the... Because the, here, here's the other thing about Death Stranding. So, one, in the trailer, you it's basically... They've sort of now kind of just revealed and said that all the weird otherworldly shit is them, like, connecting to some sort of afterlife. Like, they talk multiple times about it's, like, death... And, and the other side and all that. They um, name-check the title. Death yes. Stranding is in there. Yes, and so that's what that, all that, so people like being like, what the fuck is all that weird shit? It seems like that's just what it is, is it's the afterlife in some some way, shape, or form. The other thing is, going back to the, the long message he put out uh, into the world with this trailer, is I, it's like someone trying to describe in the most art house way what like the theme of every shonen anime is. Because it's just, that's just what it is. It's just like, oh, we're rebuilding things and building bonds between each other. And, and our main character is someone who can create bonds with other people. It's, Bond? like, it's just Persona. Like, it's just, it's just all of those three. He's Naruto. It's Persona. It's all, it's One Piece. It's all of these things. It's Sean, all of them. Bonds of people is the true power. Exactly. It's Kizuna. That's what we're looking for. So it's just fucking, I, I love it. It's not going to be very good. People are going to be so disappointed by this game. But at the um, same but it's time... Be, but you have to play it. Kojima, please never stop Kojima-ing. Yes. 
I mean, I've, I'm still in the place of where it's like, I honestly don't want you to put out any of these games. I just want you to make weird trailers like oh, yeah, this. Because I have more fun with the trailers and the, and the possibilities of it. Because where his games always fall apart is in the execution of these ideas. I still just want him to make a fucking avant-garde movie because I actually think he'd be really good at that. Yeah. And he's like, he's constantly doing something that is not, to me at least, within his actual skill set. Which is filmmaking, clearly. Because yeah. the dude can cut a trailer. Like, yes. Like, Nobody's business. Nobody in video game history is better at cutting a trailer than Hideo motherfucking Kojima. Yeah, and he cuts them himself. Like, yes. That's his whole thing. It, it does feel like he just doesn't... Maybe nobody told him that, like, you know, you could just you could just be an editor or, you know, you could be a director and edit your own movies. You don't have to make video games in order, in order to be able to edit trailers together. Like, there's a lot more work involved with making the fucking video game if all you really want to do is edit the trailers. And there's a part of me that legitimately thinks that that's his favorite part. That's what he wants to do. He just wants to edit the fucking trailers together. And somehow he's getting, like, hundreds of millions of dollars in these staffs of, like, hundreds of people as a staff to make video games just so he can cut trailers together for them. Which, like, bless him, it's the best part. It's the thing he's best at. It's the thing I most enjoy about his work. I want him to keep on making trailers. I just think it's maybe a little bit of waste of resources to actually make the video games. <laughs> it is. But, you know, everybody's got to live their truth. And Hideo Kojima's is making crazy games with crazy trailers where the women are literally named fragile. Yes, and, and where he gets to have all his Hollywood buddies be in the game with him which is maybe the best part is he just has fucking Guillermo del Toro and Nicholas Winding Refn and fucking uh, Mads Mikkelsen and Norman Reedus and all these people just he just gets them all together in his fucking video game it's awesome alright another game we got a trailer for this week much 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 less interesting is Call of Duty Modern Warfare yep that is indeed what they are calling it yep. it is just Call of Duty Modern Warfare they, they did not blank you nope. know, they, they, we lost this game of chicken. I already have encountered a difficulty um, where I searched Call of Duty Modern Warfare and got the remaster instead mm -hmm. of the new game. Yep. Um, the trailer is awful. And when you realize that they are just doing more with Captain Price and his stupid fucking cigar, I rolled my eyes into the back of my head, and I am still blind, actually. I've been playing Dark Souls blind. I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, but They're Captain... not the first to do it, but it is impressive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what you do when you bust out... The least interesting character to have this many games about them. I'm not going to lie and say I didn't like Captain Price back in 2007. We all did. He's a good part of that game. Yeah, and then they made Modern Warfare 2 where he just goes crazy and like fires a bunch of nukes off. And then they made Modern Warfare 3 where he's just the hero. Yeah, and he does he he dies at the end of that no. game, right? No, no, he kills the bad guy and the game oh. ends with him like sitting on the corpse smoking a cigar. I, for some reason, I... Maybe because like 100% at the end of Modern Warfare 3 They should have killed off Captain That's like that's the thing you do Yeah No they um, killed Soap is what you're thinking of They oh. did definitively kill Soap McTavish But Soap is in this trailer Captain Fuck off with this shit Like Captain Price is fine He's not that much of a character Yeah Although it does seem like it's just like a reboot of the Like cause it doesn't He looks young Yeah I think it's a different voice actor I know and so that makes me even less yeah. interested so Like they're just doing the story again And they God damn, I've been getting the promoted tweets and they're all like, the rules have changed. And I made a funny tweet about it. Have they changed since Modern Warfare 1 and Modern Warfare 2 and Modern Warfare 3 and Advanced Warfare and Infinite Warfare and all those Black Ops that were also set in the near future? Have they changed since that? Which were not... I, I don't think we're that far away from when Black Ops 2 was actually set, which was yeah. the first near future one. So yeah, it's... Like, I, it looked a little bit more interesting to me than like most of any Call of Duty since Infinite Warfare... Um, which is World War Two and fucking Black Ops Four? Um, because they, at least it looks based on the gameplay, like it looks like they're trying to touch a little bit of like the core feel of the game. Um, 
So it, it does it because it didn't look exactly like every Call of Duty since Call of Duty 4. Like, it looked a little bit different. Um, so that's nice. But, yeah, I'm kind of with you that, one, like, they just showed so little um, that there's not much to go on. But it's Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Like, I don't know. All right. Uh, finally, this week, we have two pieces of interconnected news around the old but classic game Baldur's Gate. Yes. So this is really interesting game. to me. Uh, there's a studio, Larian Studios. Uh, you would know them for making Divinity Original Sin 2, a very acclaimed game that I have not played yet. Yes. Though I would like to at some uh, point. They also made Divinity, uh, Divinity Original Sin 1. I know, but, yes. but 2 just came out. So. Yeah. Um, uh, and they teased on their website a big three. And people thought, oh, that could mean Divinity Original Sin 3, right? But some HTML snooping and some other like private reporting by people like Jason Schreer Kotaku revealed... They actually have the license to Baldur's Gate, and they're making Baldur's Gate 3. Baldur's yeah. Gate 2 came out back in, what, 99, 2000? Um, 2000, 2001, yeah. Okay, yeah. So this would be like the 20-year-later sequel to Baldur's Gate. Baldur's Gate obviously has been tremendously influential on everything <laughs> in yeah. a lot of ways. Um, you know, you've got those Pillars of Eternity games out right now from Obsidian that are very much um, in the vein of Baldur's Gate. Um and so they might be making this this sequel. And at the same time, we learned, and this is not a rumor, this is just fact, developer Beamdog, um, who has been managing the license of all the Baldur's Gate stuff and the other Dungeons & Dragons games from the period, um, they are bringing enhanced editions of all those games to PS4, PS, uh, PlayStation, uh, PS4, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch this fall. Uh, so you're getting Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate 2, The Expansions, uh, Planescape Torment, Icewind... Planescape. Planescape, Sorry. I didn't know how to. You're, yeah, that. you're not escaping planets. You're escaping like dead. You're you're dead and in like hell in Planescape. Okay, Planescape, uh, uh, Icewind Dale, Neverwinter Nights, all of that stuff. Um, so these are they've been so like I said, Beamdog has been managing these enhanced versions on PC for several years and uh, mobile. I think and mobile, they, yeah. yeah. And these ports they say will have native support for high resolution widescreen displays, optimizations for console controllers, new characters and classes, new voice sets. Uh, expanded character creation options, etc. So they're clearly like giving it. They're, they're, this isn't a basic port. They're adding a lot of stuff. They'll be available individually, digital, and then in physical packs. So, for instance, the Baldur's Gate pack, where you'll just get everything Baldur's Gate, um, will be coming September twenty fourth um, to all those systems. And I gotta say, I've never played Baldur's Gate. I I was actually earlier in the week because of the three announcement. I was looking up if the if the current version of two is on Mac, mm -hmm. and it is because I have a Mac. But then this came out, and I'm like, oh, I'd, I'd actually very much enjoy trying these on Switch. They're really good. Um, I never really got super deep into Baldur's Gate 2 because this is a long time ago. I think this is when I was like a freshman in college. Um, I played through Baldur's Gate 1 and then like wanted to get into 2 but like was fresh off of playing a big long RPG. It was like I can't just jump into this next one. Never quite got around to 2. Um, but yeah, they're really cool. They're basically like digital versions of Dungeons & Dragons. Like the rule sets are, I think it's based on Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. And so it's a fun way to kind of play with those kinds of mechanics without needing to have a group of like five friends that you can organize like three hour meetings with every week. And I've heard the writing is really cool and yeah. stuff like that. They're good. And I gotta say, you you and I or you know this about us. We are all in favor of bringing old games that are increasingly hard to access to yep. modern hardware because game preservation is important and underserved. 
Uh, the, a detail for that, now that you say that, is one of the reasons why Icewind Dale 2 is not in this is because nobody knows where the source code to Icewind Dale 2 is. So they f- literally cannot make an enhanced edition of Icewind Dale 2. That is a tragedy? Yep. I am very glad, though, that... I mean, again, Baldur's Gate, whether you've played it or not, you have to know it's just one of the most important pieces of video game history. Yeah. And getting it on all the modern consoles, that's, that's just a net positive for gaming. And then the idea that this Studio Larian might be making a full-on Baldur's Gate 3, I think is... Really fascinating to me because I'm curious what it would be in a world where Baldur's Gate has influenced so yeah. much. And mostly, like, I'm curious what it would be, like, how different it would be from something like a Divinity, Divinity Original Sin because those games are in that, like, Infinity Engine style. Like, it is, it is, I have not really played those, but it is one of those kinds of games. So, yeah, I'm curious, like, what, like, what, yeah, like, what does it mean to make a Baldur's Gate 3? Are they going to try to go in a slightly different direction than the Divinity games? Um, obviously, it'll be in the Forgotten Realms setting, I believe is what it's called, the technically, yeah. the, the sort of D&D setting that uh, Baldur's Gate is set in. But yeah, it's an interesting announcement. Like, one thing that I'm curious of is how well those games would play on console, because they are super mouse and keyboard games. Um, and I'm sure, like, you can get it to work, but I am a little bit skeptical of, like, the games being really good because it's, it's not even just the pointer. It's the pointer and having, like, a bunch of different keys you can hotkey things to um, is a pretty big deal for those games. So I'm yeah. curious to see. I, I haven't heard... touched the enhanced edition, so I don't know, like, what yeah. changes they've made in that sense. I think in a world where people have done, you know, Diablo 3 really well on consoles, Pillars of Eternity, I've heard, is has done a surprisingly good job with, like, the console controller because people had the same concern about yeah. that. Like, I think there's precedent. It, this one might be even harder, but, you know, if they're up to it, again, net positive. Yes, yeah, obviously, like, absolutely put it out. That's just something I'm curious about, personally, is whether or not yeah. and um, Xbox it's going to play well that way. Xbox One has full mouse and keyboard support, so if that's, that's what you've got, that, that also, if they have that in there, that could be cool. That'd be a funny way to, <laughs> to, to get, like, the really roundabout way of playing that game. But just if you didn't have a... Although, I guess any laptop could play those today. Yes, but, yeah. yeah. All right. Let's move on to our first topic today. Phoebe just dropped a bone. Uh, let's do some E3 predictions, Sean. All right. So, I, Phoebe is going nutso with that bone. <laughs> we are on a hardwood floor, and the bone is making noise. So there you go. And now the dogs are up again. They have been quiet for a while. Yeah. They, right. they, they're not super into CRPGs, so when we start talking about Baldur's Gate, like, fuck this shit. Yeah. And, uh, but now, like, they really like E3. They really they want to hear about it. Yeah. The but, dogs after my own heart. Yeah. Sean, so Phoebe, get down. I mean, Sonny. I called Sonny Sean, and then I called... Anyway. It's a lot of names to deal with. It's way more... Usually, you only have to deal with one name on this podcast. It's just me. Now it's very true. Three, it's three, 300% the names. <laughs> All right. Uh, so... E3, this year we have, in this order, Microsoft, Bethesda, and Devolver Digital will be going Sunday, June 9th. On Monday, June 10th, we will be getting the PC Gaming Show, we will be getting Ubisoft, and we will be getting Square Enix. Yep. And then on Tuesday, June 11th, will be the Nintendo Direct. So, as, as always. Yes. So those are the shows that we have this year. We have no Sony, we have no EA, one of those is not missed. Um, <laughs> so, Sean... You always like to lead these segments because yes. you put an obsessive amount of thought into E3. Yeah, so I have not put as much research into the EA or E3 speculation this year as I have in years past. I did go over my notes from E3 2018 to kind of help me remind me like what happened at last year's E3. What are things that we were looking for that weren't there? What are things they announced that they haven't talked about since? And I put together some notes. So, first of all, you said that EA is not going to be there, which is... 
that's what they want us to think, but they are basically doing what is called the EA Play um, show, which is a series of live streams focused on individual games, and they have already released the schedule for it, so I thought we might as well, because we'll obviously we'll talk about some of this stuff, because um, I'm going to at least watch one of these um, for actual E3, because it starts off with at 9.30 a.m. on Saturday, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, um, so we're going to get a solid 30 minutes or so depending on how long like the host sections are and stuff, of Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. And it's interesting to me that they decided to start the show with Jedi, because I feel like that is the showstopper. Like, that's the game that nobody knows about, everyone's curious about. Like, that's the only thing that EA has that I'm interested in seeing more of. So we will definitely at least talk about that. Then they're going to, at 10 a.m., have something about Apex Legends, so presumably probably a new character or something like that. Hopefully a new map. Because, they just announced season two is coming. Yes. So and they've been releasing some new characters and stuff. I'm hoping that they have a new map or maybe some new modes because I'd like I'd like to get back into Apex Legends, but it's been a while since I played it, partially because I just kinda got bored of the same thing over and over again. Um then they'll have some sort of battlefield, I think it's Battlefield Five stuff, um FIFA twenty, Madden NFL twenty, because this is to twenty twenty, so there we go, we're on the twenties now. That's weird to see. And then and then a show they're gonna end it with The Sims four. So I, you know, probably some big DLC pack. I think I think if you want to get all the DLC for The Sims 4, it's for like something like 400 or $500. So they put out a lot of DLC for those games because there are lots of people who the only video game they play is fucking Sims. Interesting to note, there is, Anthem is not on that list. They are not talking about Anthem. Um, Anthem has barely made the, the date of they had said that they were going to talk about what the Cataclysm event was going to be for Anthem sometime in May um, and they went almost the entirety of May without saying anything else about it and I think it was two days ago now so like May twenty May 30th I think it was they finally got in and said Cataclysm is going to be this sort of thing we'll talk about it more later and like it was the kind of like a, we technically followed our promise but in no way actually did the thing that we were going to originally said we were going to do on a roadmap. So I watched a whole news video about this recently that Anthem has like didn't they go dark on Twitter for a full for a month? month for a full month and it was a couple of days after it was a full month that they then finally put out a live stream and talked about the cataclysm thing. And my impression is that most people are not super impressed by what well because I also saw to be. I also saw this this news video it was on YouTube and, and I'm sorry I forget um, which channel did this it was a couple weeks ago it was also showing off like on Xbox One there's pretty much no player base anymore mm -hmm. like no yeah. ones they're down to like a thousand active players like and that there's rumors that internally they're planning on just giving up on anthem i mean or they're they they're considering it like that that game boy we have not seen a disaster like that in a while yeah it's bad and 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 that reminds me of i'm gonna bring up i want to read my notes from e3 2018 from their anthem yes on um, presentation because I feel like I was pretty on the nose with a lot of my analysis here. So this is this is last year's E3. Let's revisit what it was like a year ago um, when they talked about Anthem. So trailer. So they must have shown a trailer. Trailer is put together well, but I want a bit more of a story pitch on this game. Um, then they said there's going to have a deep dive on Anthem. Casey Hudson, Mark Dara, and Kathleen Rootshart, the lead writer, are now on stage for a Q&A session. It's kind of weird having Casey leave working on Anthem and come back still working on Anthem. I didn't realize that we had known that information at the time, but clearly we did because I made that joke. Um, uh, this, this whole presentation feels very rehearsed, which is weird when they're doing this sort of Q&A presentation. I like having devs on stage, but why aren't they doing this with a live gameplay demo? Hmm, why weren't they doing it with a live gameplay demo? I wonder if we could fill in that blank now. Um, they have built the game, quote, so they can add story. 
The players share the world, but the story happens mostly in the hub cities, I guess? Question mark? This pitch for how it balances single-player story and multiplayer share world stuff is kind of confusing me. Uh, the lead writer is going deep on the lore of Anthem. Sounds a lot like Destiny, magic, sci-fi, fantasy stuff. God, this is such a vague, intangible way to show off this game. This is something that would be cool for a post-show thing, but they need to show off the game by showing off the fucking game. Also, a lot of this isn't really new info. It's diving a bit deeper into stuff we already knew, like the different types of power suits. When they show footage, I don't know if it's new footage or just stuff they showed uh, last year. Now they're taking questions from Twitter. Okay, this is definitely new footage. They're showing suit customization. Loot boxes, question mark? They will sell cosmetics, but not loot boxes. Man, EA is really running scared, huh? So that was fresh off of all the Battlefront 2 shits. They said, we're not selling loot boxes. We're just doing cosmetic DLC, but it's not loot boxes. Um, man, uh, or, or you know what's a great way to show off your sexy new AAA game at E3? Why not having people sit on chairs and talk about it for 10 minutes? Um, the game is built to support single player. That, that was not really true. Um, finally, they're going to show some footage. The Frostbite logo should get an ominous music sting, so I was hot on those jokes back then. Um, gameplay footage looked pretty good. It's hard to ignore the Destiny similarities. February 22nd, 2019. Hmm, wonder if they'll hit that date. Feels like we should have uh, seen a bit more if it's that close. I want to be more excited about Anthem, but something just feels off about it. And what we have now learned, Sean, is you knew exactly as much about the game as the developers did. Yep. And they had... No game ready to show because the game wasn't made yet. Yes. I, I just, when I was reading through those notes again, I'm like, man, I was really on point about fucking Anthem being sort of iffy uh, at E3 last year. Because, wow. yeah, and now now it's a live game that is dead. Yeah, it's an unlive game. Uh, any other EA stuff? Nope. That's like, so again, they just sort of went out there and said, yeah, this is what we're doing. So I can't, I, maybe there'll be like a surprise announcement. I'm not guessing. I think they're just deciding, yeah, fuck it. We had our reveal of the Jedi game. We'll do a presentation of the Jedi game. That's good enough for us. So that's EA. Moving on to Microsoft, which was, as you said, was on Sunday. A couple of predictions here is one, I think we're going to hear from, there's this new From Software game um, that is has some sort of collaboration with George R. R. Martin. I'm not sure if you've heard those. Yes, rumors. and I've, I meant to put it on the outline last week and this week, and I forgot to. But yeah, he Martin, in a blog post, just kind of offhand said, hey, I've been collaborating with a game studio in Japan. And then people kind of put two and two together that, that FromSoft is doing something with sort of a high fantasy setting, a la the kind of stuff that's Martin's bread and butter. Um, and that Martin is collaborating with them on that, which is... That's fucking exciting to me. Yeah, and so then other rumors followed after that that it was going to be on Microsoft's press conference, which makes sense because that's actually Sekido Shadows Die Twice was at Microsoft's press conference last year. I forgot that. Yes, because yeah. Microsoft basically trotted out every single third-party developer onto their stage. Well, because that's the interesting thing is Microsoft has been most exciting the last few years for all the third-party stuff. Yeah. Which, like, there's and there's no exclusivity there. Like, Sekiro... You could play wherever you wanted, but like because Sony doesn't show off any third-party stuff anymore because they don't have to. Yes, and they, definitely not this year. <laughs> definitely not this year. Yeah, I feel like we're probably going to get even more of that. I mean, that is the fun part of the Microsoft shows. It gets a little like repetitive, but yeah, I I agree. We'll probably FromSoft works fucking fast. Yes, they had. They had. They're at least a two-team studio, so it would make sense that they'd have something ready. Yeah, so that's so. cool. And George R. R. Martin, if he said it publicly. Stuff has happened. They're, they're not at the beginning of the process. Yeah, and I'm curious to see how much his, like, how deep his involvement was. If it was like, a, oh, like, I helped with the world building, or if it's like, a, no, like, he was deeply involved in writing, like, the script and stuff like that. I'll be interested to see more details from that. What if 
FromSoft just full on made a Game of Thrones game and they did the whole yeah. plot and they just did it better than the show and they just did a fuck you to the show. I mean, it would be, I, I think, not to say easier is not the right word, it would be more fitting to do that story in a video game yes. than it would be to do it in a TV show. I want you to have to play as Tyrion and do the battles Tyrion is in where Tyrion gets really fucked up and it's, it's just, FromSoft makes it extra hard because you are not just a character in a FromSoft game and it's always hard, but you are fucking Tyrion Lannister. Yeah. But Tyrion, I, I don't know, he chopped a fucking dude's leg off with a goddamn axe. That's that true. Dude, he can get some shit done if he needs to. I'm just saying, you're going to have to work for it in the video game. Yes. So, yeah, so I'm really excited to see, I, again, I'm just assuming that's going to be at Microsoft. Um, other games that we know Microsoft has announced and I'm assuming are going to be there in some form, Halo Infinity. Is it Halo Infinite or Halo Infinity? Um, I wrote Halo Infinity here, but I definitely didn't Google it. So you Google it. So I'll Google it. I think it's Halo Infinite, but yeah, it's Halo Infinite, Infinity, whatever it is, because they had the ship. It's the Infinity Engine. Yes, and and I think the ship was called the Infinity. Yeah, because... it's just Halo Infinite. Okay, yeah. so it's Halo Infinite, not Halo Infinity. Um, but whatever Halo Infinite is, I think we'll after the Microsoft press conference, I think we will know what that game is. They had a teaser for it last year that and said I, basically nothing. I will continue my prediction from last year, which is Halo Infinite is Destiny, but with Halo. Yeah, and I'm, I'm basically in agreement. I don't know. I'm not as confident that it's going to be like a full online side of Destiny, but I think it's at least going to be a loot shooter um, and have like whole loot-based Diablo kind of stuff to it. Which, if that's the case, I'm going to stick my fingers down the back of my throat and vomit into the trash can over here. Yes, because... You know, I feel like actually the time is more ripe now for a more traditional Halo game than it's been in a while. And, and Phoebe is really, really nom- nomming on that bone there. Yes, she agrees. She's like, yes. I want Halo. Yeah, give me back classic. There's no other shooters like it anymore. Let's do classic Halo. Um, next up, Gears of War 5. Um, that game is presumably going to come out this holiday season. So I, we're definitely going to get a big trailer for that. I'll probably be very bored by it. Big question. Do they really just call it Gears 5 and drop the Of War? I think so. From what I understand, that is what um, the coalition, the developers that took over from Epic on the Gears of War stuff, I, from what I understand, they've been wanting to do that, and they couldn't get it done for Gears 4. So now the Gears 5, I think that's, I think yes, I think it's just going to be Gears 5. This is so stupid. I will continue to probably call it Gears of War 5 more often than not, because I'm more used to that, but whatever. Um, also, this was something I rediscovered by looking at my notes. They announced a new Battletoads game at last year's E3. Yeah, they did. So presumably, I don't think anybody has said anything about that game since. So presumably, it's going to be a game, we're going to get a trailer because it was just like a title card um, at last year's E3. For this is a whole string of games we have not heard of since last E3. Yeah. So presumably, we're going to see that. Um, Forza Motorsport Eight. I had to Google to figure out if it because I typed Forza Motorsport Seven originally. I'm like. Wait a minute. I feel like that felt too natural for me to write seven there. It's we it, seven must be the last one that came out. And I looked up. It's like yes, we are on Forza Motorsport fucking eight. So there you go. That's going to be there. Um, Jonathan, do you think this year they're going to drop a car onto the stage? Because I don't think they did last time. Probably not. I think I yeah. think their spectacle is coming in other areas at yeah. this point. I agree. I think that we're not going to get that. I'm I'm still desperate for them to just have the car in the audience and have it drive up onto the stage on from a ramp because I think that would be cool. And they haven't done it yet. They should do that, but they're probably not going to. Um, and that's all the games that I had that were like these are Microsoft games um, that there are rumors for or we know for sure that are announced that we would assume to be there. Um, Jonathan, do you, are there any third party games off the top of your head that like you think definitely going to be here? Call of Duty is going to be there. 
Because where else would it be this year? Uh, like, may, if it's going to be on a stage, it would be there. Like, Activision doesn't always. Activision is kind of like Rockstar, where they don't. E3 is not mandatory for them. They did Infinite Warfare, a big one back in the day, but have they, they did, done one yeah. since? World War II was on the Microsoft stage, wasn't it? I don't remember with World War II. I, yeah, like, so we'll see. Out, I think it we'll could, if we see it at E3, it'll be at Microsoft. Yeah, it's, it's the only um, place for it to be. So yeah. any third parties, the only place for it to be would be there, or like obviously Ubisoft has their own thing. Man, I don't know because so for third party stuff. Um, okay, uh, the Dragon Ball RPG project. Yes, I think we will see that because they've got they've had they had Jump Force, they had Fighters. Yes, they've had all the the, the big Shonen stuff there. So we'll see that. Um, God, what else though? Um, for third parties So Borderlands 3 If it's going to be at the show Borderlands 3 would be At the Microsoft press conference um, And other than that Like I'm having a hard time Coming up with And I was just like When I was typing this up I was like I can't think of many other Good Like there's some stuff um, there, there are third party games But most of the other ones I can think of are Ubisoft or Square Enix And would be at those Press conferences Yeah I mean it's Because I also don't know what Because sometimes games Get double dipped Like Assassin's yes. Creed Or Kingdom or Hearts 3 Kingdom Hearts 3 Which got triple dipped yes. uh, Last year's E3 But I don't know I, I don't know if there's Any games like that That sort of have that demand Like I, like Square's obviously Going to show us Final Fantasy 7 stuff But I don't think They'll double dip on it Because it's not ready To come out Yeah And I'm, I'm guessing There's going to be One or two Unannounced third-party games that we don't know about that mm-hmm. we wouldn't be able to predict that are going to be on the Microsoft stage. like the Metro Exodus of this year. Whatever yes, that yes, is. Some, yeah. something like that is going to be there. Um, so next up for Microsoft is: Do you think we're going to see anything from their studio acquisitions from last time? So last time around, as a reminder, they had already bought Obsidian, and then when they went on stage and announced that they one created a new internal studio called the Initiative. They bought Undead Labs, who are the people who make State of Decay, and they released State of Decay 2 last year. Um, Playground Games, who make the Forza Horizon games. Um, Ninja Theory, which we, we all know Ninja Theory here, you know, makers of uh, Hellblade, Hellblade uh, Enslaved, Odyssey to the West, DMC, Devil May Cry, all those games. Uh, and then they also bought Compulsion Games, who made We Happy Few, which also just like actually launched last year as well. So, I think we will see something. I don't think we will see a lot. And I think it will be early. I think Team Ninja could have something ready to show if it is of the size of a Hellblade. You mean Ninja Theory? What Team, the Team Ninja is Tecmo Koei. Team Ninja is making Neo 2, which might I'm, be on that stage. I'm never not going to make this mistake. I've trained long and hard to try to avoid making that mistake. But yes, Ninja Theory, I think will show... I, I think they could show something. Because Hellblade was two years ago. It was 2017. Yes. Yeah. And if they're making something roughly the size of Hellblade, or even a little bigger, they could... I don't think it's like... And it's out now or out this fall, but I think they could show yeah. it. Um, I don't think we'll see anything from Playground Games. I mean, they just put out Forza Horizon Four, um, and and they're probably working on something else. But but it'll you know, like the new Fable is what we all think they're doing. Yeah. But I don't think that we're ready for that. Do you have any predictions? Um, I think maybe we'll see something from Obsidian because they work really yeah. quickly. Um, they have that other I forget the name of it, but that other RPG that's that sort of fall New Vegasy style thing. Yeah, that will probably be on this stage also. But that's a because they were working on the game before the purchase that's a multi-platform game I agree that I think if anybody has something to show from this it's going to be Ninja Theory um, and I think there's those Fable games the, the new Fable game made by Playground Games the Forza Horizon people has been such a persistent rumor for so long I think maybe this is the year we see it well you, well, you know what we could do we could get a little teaser kind of yes. like like Bethesda did for um, Dragon Age 4 yeah yeah I think that because because Microsoft needs to keep up the momentum 
Yeah. Um, and it's going to be hard for them because all the anything that is from those studios is going to be very early. So they need to show something that would get people excited. And Fable is, if you're a longtime Xbox person like me, Fable is a um, a game you really is that's sort of like near and dear to your heart. That you, I think a new Fable game could be awesome. I have no faith that a new Fable game is going to be awesome, but it could be. And so you get someone saying chicken chaser and have a funny Britishy joke because that's a thing from Fable. And if if it is yeah. playground games, they are extraordinarily good at what they do. I would not bet against them. Yeah, is all I'll say. Um, big question for Microsoft: Do we see next gen stuff? Yeah. So that's that's next thing I have here is how much does Microsoft show of their next gen console? And then I have a series of this is I think the order of information. Um, and so specs is number one. I think we're going to get some kind of specs. We're going to get the equivalent of whatever Sony has put out so far. Yeah, I agree that we're at least going to get that. So I think we're at least going to get specs. Next up, do you think we see any sort of the, the design of the console, like no. a box or anything? No, it's they wouldn't have that nailed down yet. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, they. Well, would. see, here's the thing: if they do, it's going to be like the original reveal of the PlayStation Three with the fucking boomerang controller. Yes, because that's why you don't show these things off early. Yeah, so I mean, whether or not they showed a design, the design would not be finalized for sure this far out. I think because they, I think it was with the Xbox One X, they had that really pretentious, annoying, um, like video package that showed like here's like this dumb looking. Thing like like here's like the fan and the vent or whatever um, that's like super close up but you don't actually see the whole thing yet. I think maybe we get something like that. Um, controller? Do you think we see the controller? For no. It? Yeah, I agree. No. Um, name? I think definitely not. No. What do you think the name is though? I don't think they know what the name is. I, I mean, think, the, I name, think the we'll... name, like with the design, the name is definitely not finalized. This thing is a year and a half away. Yeah. It's I mean, I think I think we'll get whatever they're internal. I think they'll tell us. They're, they're not coy about saying, like, Project Scorpion or whatever it is, yeah, right? Because um, I forget what the, because the project name is out there, but I don't remember what okay. it is. So, I think they'll yeah. just refer to it as that. I think they'll be clear what project it is. But no, like, the, again, they can't have... The, like, they probably decided on Xbox One with a coin flip over lunch before they fucking did the presentation. I mean, yeah. and that was a very bad name. I'm still in the boat where my best guess is they're just going to call it Xbox and they're not going to have anything mm-hmm. else on it. And a, I lot, a lot of people said that when the Xbox One was coming out and a lot of people were very wrong. I know, but so, I... Because what is the option? Xbox Two! I would love that. I would laugh my goddamn ass I can't, off. I can't... There's no way they do it and yet I cannot get away from it. Yeah. I want Here's them what so I want. desperately to just call it the Xbox 2. Here's what I want in my heart of hearts is it's the Xbox 2, but it's T-O-O, and it's all about playing <laughs> together. Like, each each console comes with two controllers in the box. That's one of its selling points. There you go, the Xbox 2. two. Uh, um, I mean, I also think Xbox Infinity is possible. Um, you mean Xbox just, Infinite? We'll see which one. Yeah. Uh, I think, but they also that was also a prediction around Xbox One. I think it would be great if they just came out and finally did the Xbox 720. Yep, they go back to that old gym. What if they do the Xbox 362 just to like go back to when they had good consoles? What if they they're like there's someone still working at Microsoft that's like their favorite thing is just to fuck with people, and so they really sit and call it the OG Xbox, <laughs> just to make it like literally impossible to refer to the actual original Xbox. That's like their life's mission is to confuse the shit out of people. That would be great. I gotta say, Sean Clorod, Microsoft. You know, I've been messing around with my 360 because I got it out. Um, there's a whole story I have to tell at some point about I wanted to buy a 360 game for backwards compatibility and I had money in my account and the only way I could spend it on a 360 game was to actually pull out my physical 360 and do it. They oh. don't let you do it on the internet or on the Xbox One. Interesting. Anyway, um, the 360 was such a great fucking console, Sean. Mm-hmm. 
that jewel, you bring up the thing and the guy just pops up. Why, why don't we have that? I know both the Xbox One and PS4 have things like it. They are nowhere near as fast or good as yeah. the, the jewel thing was on the Xbox 360. And like just the whole user interface where you can get into all of the like settings and storage and all that stuff. Like It was, it was a really good system. I still love that controller. I like it more than the Xbox One controller. I just... I missed the 360 a little bit. And by the, by the end of the 360 generation, I didn't feel that way, but absence makes the heart grow fonder because yeah. the 360 did do a lot of good things that the new consoles, particularly the Xbox One, have just fucked up on. Yeah, no, so, I agree. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, so the, I, uh, I'm all in favor of the Xbox 362. That's my point. I'm, I want just the Xbox 2, or, the, or now that I've thought of the OG Xbox, I think that is the funniest possible answer. Um, other pieces of information that are definitely not going to be there, but I decided to put it on here anyways, is price and date. Like both those things are so far from being decided, but there's going to be people saying, "Oh, we're definitely good. It's definitely good. It's going to be five hundred dollars." Fucking, we don't know. They I don't mean, know. do we know that it's twenty twenty? It's not one hundred percent confirmed, but um, Sony has strongly indicated. Um, every re- like source I've seen from like Jason Schreier to everybody else is all saying twenty twenty, which presumably right. means holiday twenty twenty. But that's the PS four. I'm just yeah. thinking like. Oh. And I'm guessing if you asked Phil Spencer if they could release the new Xbox in 2019 and come out ahead of PlayStation, they would. Absolutely. That would be the smartest thing they could do. It's what the Xbox 360 did back in the day. It came out a full year before the PS3 and the Wii. And it would be kind of, I think, the only way to fight PlayStation at this point. Because Switch very much showed that you can do a mid-gen launch and like go away with it. And if you do that straddling of like... The Xbox One is basically dead anyway. Just do a new one while you have no competition. I don't think it will happen because I think we would have heard a leak about that by yeah, now. Yeah, I think we would know. I just want to put it out there that, because no one else is predicting this, I think there's a probability, and it is a low probability, I do think there's a probability that they just full-on say, it's this November, here's the price point, here's what it is. I think it's like less than 10%, but I also think that if they could pull that off, they would love to pull that off. I mean, I think if they could pull it off, they would love to. I think the problem is... One, like, the dev kits would have had to have been out there for long enough that we would 100% know yes. about it. Um, and I think, because I think the problem they would face is one, I think, like, if we feel like, you know, we're, because I think both of us feel right now in this moment, it feels very soon to have a new console on the market. Uh-huh. But the new console, if it comes out holiday 2020, the new console is a year and a half away, and that's a pretty significant amount of time. If it was actually coming out this holiday season, they would have to convince people to spend 400 to $500. Because remember, the Xbox One and the Xbox One X both will launch at 500 bucks. They'd have to convince people to spend $500 on that machine, um, especially after the Xbox One X is not particularly old. And most of their, like, the Microsoft faithful have very recently spent a lot of money on a very expensive console. I think it would be hard for them to push that narrative because they would also have no games because they have yeah. no games for the Xbox One. I they don't have any fucking games for the Xbox Two. Um, so that's I think that is the thing that makes me like I, I agree that it's technically a possibility. I think it would be a very risky move because if you launch that thing and it has mostly a dead launch because of those factors, uh, you really sort of if you shoot your load too early, you're kind of fucked. Very, it's there, true in life. It's true in love. It's, it's, it's true, true in gaming. Yeah, it's true in console launches. So yeah. you got to be careful with how you time that shit. Anything else you have for Microsoft? Um, they're definitely going to talk about like xCloud service. Oh, yeah. that, that stuff is going to be there. Um, but that's, that, that's the only other stuff I have for Microsoft. 
So there's definitely going to be a bunch of third-party shit that you don't have to try to rattle off and think of everything. But it's going to be a lot of third-party stuff. I think it's going to be structured the same way all their um, press conferences have been structured since uh, uh, they took over. It's just like, here's a bunch of games. Here's some dude saying, console launch exclusive, and whatever the fuck that means. And that's going to be Microsoft press conference. Can I say one thing we didn't predict yet? Sure. Yeah. Is Halo Infinite this year, or is it full-on an Xbox 2 I, game? I think it's, I think it's going to be cross... I, th- I think it's going to come out spring 2020, and then there's going to be like a Halo Infinite Xbox OG Xbox edition for the next Xbox console. I think that's what they're going to do. It's so confusing yeah. to talk about Xbox. Yeah, I Let's don't. Move on. Yeah, I don't think it's going to come out this whole. No, time. I don't either. So moving on to Bethesda um, at 5:30 p.m. on Sunday, they they have already announced Doom Eternal. I think they'll talk about that. I bet Doom Eternal comes out this holiday. Yeah. Um, Wolfenstein Youngblood. They've talked about that. Um, some new footage came out about from that from like I think it was like an NVIDIA event there's something like weird that happened where there's like 50 seconds of that game that looked very cool I think they'll have a lot of that I think because that game is going to come out this holiday season also so I bet those are the two major things they sort of pin it on they will talk about Elder Scrolls Legends which is the Elder Scrolls card game because they always do they'll talk about Elder Scrolls Online which is the Elder Scrolls MMO because they always do um Elder Scrolls Blades is in early access on mobile right now, so I think they'll have um, some stuff about that. But that's everything I have that is confirmed that like we know that they're making and I assume is going to be there. Um, other stuff is, do you think there's going to be anything from Starfield, which is the sort of next Bethesda Game Studios main RPG? I think it would be weird if they showed nothing. Mm-hmm. Because it was... if if. If you win a full year and did nothing more on everything Todd Howard did last year, I think that would be hard. Yeah. That would be weird. Like, I don't expect Elder Scrolls Six to be there, and I think everyone will get that. But yeah, I think you've got to show something of Starfield. Yeah, I think think you have to at least remind people that it exists. I think that that's 100% a next-gen game, so I don't think we're going to see much of it. Do you think they talk about Fallout 76 at all? I think someone comes out and commits Harakiri on stage over Fallout 76. I feel like Fallout 76 has started to gain a weird cult thing. Yeah, like it's, it's starting to happen. It's starting to happen in like these the weird corners of the internet. It's not Anthem. Like let's be clear, yes. like it's it's in the ballpark of Anthem, but it's not But it's actually a live game in the yes. sense that like Bethesda has been working on it and updating yeah. it and so they have fostered a community whereas the community on Anthem are just it's basically dead on most yeah. platforms. So I think they talk about Fallout 76. I think they try to spin a narrative around that game that yeah. they are like working to fix it and do kind of like the Destiny thing with that game. I agree. Um, Rage 2 literally just launched a couple of months ago. It got decent-ish reviews, so they might say something. I don't know if they've said if there's going to be DLC for that game. If there is, I bet they will talk about it. Full-on Rage 3 announcement right now. Double down on just it. Just get um, who is it? Andrew WK, who was he was playing the music uh, last year, to get him out. He's, he's already written the theme song for the next one. Very excited about it. Um... Do you think there's going to be a new Arcane Studios game? These are the people that made Dishonored, Dishonored 2, and Prey. They've been silent Prey, for a little bit. Prey is pretty recent, though. Wasn't Prey that... was two years ago, and last year oh. they did um, Moon Crash, which was a DLC for Prey, and that was on their conference. Then yes, actually. I, yeah. Prey was late, uh, further away than I thought. So yeah. yes, I think so. I think we're going to... I don't know if it's going to be like, and it's coming out this fall, no. but I think... I think if they could show an arcane game for the same release window Prey had in 2017, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, I I think I bet we're going to see whatever Arcane has been working on. And yeah. It's going to be yeah, like a spring 2020 to maybe fall 2020 game. 
and that's that's all I've got for Bethesda. It's just like I feel like their slate is weird because we know that Bethesda Game Studios is working on Starfield, and we know that after Starfield they're going to be working on Elder Scrolls Six. So it's like yeah. predicting the speculation for Bethesda could turn very strange all of a sudden. You know, they kind of stole the show last year um, because Todd Howard couldn't stop announcing games. Yeah, and they also made Fallout seventy six look a lot more interesting than it wound up being. So, Todd Howard is a fucking salesman. Like, he that is. dude can get out there and fucking convince some people of, of some shit. So. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, I hope he still has that cool leather jacket if he's on the stage. Yeah. I think as a general tone you're hearing, this is kind of going to be a quiet year for everybody. Yeah. But uh, we'll see. I'm very excited to see more Doom 2. Oh, like, yeah. I, totally. I, yeah, yeah. I desperately want to see more of that game. That's one of my most anticipated games I want. I, I want to be excited about some games that are going to come out later this year because I just don't know what's coming out later this year. I, I do too. And, and frankly, you know, every time I remember Doom Eternal is coming out, I have to put it in the back of my mind and forget about Doom Eternal because yes. otherwise I cannot function as a human because it's too exciting. Absolutely. So I'm really excited to see more of that. And, and I bet we get a date for that game. God damn it. I got to go play Doom 1 again. Fucking yeah, I it's mean, a good game. It depends on how you define Doom 1. Either Doom 1 would be worth playing again. I meant yes. the Doom 2016, but yes. I'm, I'm going to play the actual Doom 1 and then just jump straight to Doom Eternal. So you know, we might, you know what, Sean? Podcast topic. We have never done an episode on original Doom. No, we haven't. And it, That's it a is, great fucking game. It is a small time investment because yes. it's not a huge yeah, game. You, you can play that game, especially if you use a, a walkthrough to get through some of the more obtuse levels. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, maybe we should do that. Yeah. Anyway, let's. Uh, what, what else you got, Sean? Moving on to Monday, Ubisoft. Um, they have a press conference at 1 p.m. I'm sure it's going to be fun. I'm going to sure it's going to look like it was put on a bunch of people who just uh, tripped acid. <laughs> So it's definitely because I feel like the last four years have all opened with the Just Dance game. This year is going to open with Just Dance 2020, and we're going to be very confused before until we remember that Just Dance exists. Because because they're just going to it's just going to be a man in giraffe costume dancing for like three minutes, and then they're going to say, and Just Dance 2020 is going to be on every platform that exists. It's we're putting it out on the Philips CBI. Surprise! Yeah. You know that's <laughs> what they've always done. Um, and this is I bet this is going to be the third year in running that we see some stuff about Beyond Good and Evil Two, and it's going to confuse people. They there was a news announcement they're not bringing it to you. Oh, right? they're not. Yeah. Okay, well, they took Beyond that off Good the and table. Evil Two is not coming out. Um, that game is going to get canceled. Uh, <laughs> it's, if it's skipping an E3, I have no confidence in it. So that's what's happening now. Um, I bet we get an, a DLC announcement for the Division Two. That game came out. I feel like nobody's talking about it, but it sold pretty well. So People liked it. It got good reviews. People liked it, but it, I, I'm curious to see... Because I feel like The Division kept on maintaining like a pretty dedicated community. I'm curious to see if The Division 2 manages that or not. But I bet we get some DLC for that. They announced a couple weeks ago that Ghost Recon Breakpoint game, the sequel to Ghost Recon Wildlands. So they're definitely going to show that. I will maintain to be very... They're making a sequel to Ghost Recon Wildlands? Yes. We will get um, more like weird Ubisoft like fake video game chatter at the Breakpoint trailer. You can fuck, I can fucking guarantee it. So that's going to happen. That's going. I'm sure that's going to be a very boring point of their press conference because fuck those games. Um, Skull and Bones, their pirate game. I bet that we have seen that, and I bet it gets a release date for 2019. Ooh, I don't I, think I don't think it's 2019. I I think if it's not 2019, I think they're fucked on that game. Like you just think like. It's either 2019 or like spring 2020. Like I don't, I feel like they can't wait much longer on that game because if because we're at that point where if you start pushing it back too far, now all of a sudden you're running into new console launches, right? Sean, I think I've been reading more news than you. Oh, this really? is this is from GameSpot. This oh, no. is May 30th. This is two days ago. 
Ubisoft pirate game Skull and Bones not coming to E3 and it's delayed to next year. Well, that game's fucked too. So let me read Ubisoft is fucked. Yeah. For yet another time, Ubisoft has delayed its naval warfare pirate game Skull and Bones. The French publisher originally scheduled Skull and Bones for a 2018 launch, but then announced a delay until 2019 to 2020. Now Ubisoft is saying the game won't come out until sometime after 2019-20, and additionally, it will not be a part of their 2019 showcase. What the hell are they showing this year? That's a good question. Yeah, clearly I should have done a little bit more research. I mean, there's definitely going to be Just Dance 2020. There's definitely going to be Division 2 DLC. And there's definitely going to talk about Ghost Recon Breakpoint. Because I just announced that game. Which Assassin's Creed game is being remastered and what's left? Because um, they did the God. Ezio Trilogy. Yeah. They did 3. They did... 4 is already on the new consoles. They did Rogue. Yeah, they did. And those are the only... The only one is the original, actually, at this point. Has not You're been... right, yeah. It's on back compat for 360, but it's not remastered. That's a good... I, I wonder if it's a, like, full remaster. I wonder if it's not just, like, a... Here's, like, Assassin's Creed 1 at 4K. I wonder if they just kind of remake that game. It could be interesting. Yeah, like, I, that's... Honestly, that's what I would do. I, yeah. I think it would be... Because that game... If you remade that game and tweaked some of the dumb bullshit in that game, it could be really good. Like, that yeah. game is so close to being amazing, and it just, like, kind of slips and falls down a cliff. Um, so they have that to would do be something I'd honestly be interested in. Because they have to do Assassin's Creed something. Yes, and because by, I feel like they have said that they're not going to talk about... Because they're ta- they've said they're right. taking a year off from Assassin's Creed, which to me, in a case, they're not going to talk about it at E3 either. Yeah, but I think that we're going to get a remaster of some kind, yeah. and it's also coming to Switch, probably, because 3 just came to Switch. Yes, so I think that's a good point. Well, let's throw that on prediction. It's some sort of Assassin's Creed remake, and I'm, I'm going to put my coin down, my weird John Wick Assassin coin on. It's going to be like a full remake of Assassin's Creed 1, because... That would be interesting to me, and I think it'd be fun to go back and play a classic-style Assassin's Creed and reimagine that first game. Um, uh, Watch Dogs 3 is probably going to be here. They have There have been a lot of rumors about it that it's going to be set in London. There are a lot of rumors that there are going to be no guns in that game, which, oh. if that's the case, like that would be very cool. Okay, because you probably just heard me audibly sighing yes. at, the, at the fucking sentence, Watch Dogs 3. Apparently you haven't been reading as much news as me, Jonathan. Sorry, I, I wasn't saying it to brag. I just well, I was. we had two in a row. Yeah. Uh, okay. If they're doing it totally different, yeah, that's good. They can also just call it something else and make it something exciting. But yeah, Super Watchdogs. <laughs> that would be great. I would totally play yeah. Super Watchdogs because because people, a lot of people really like Watchdogs too. Okay. Um, I didn't play it for obvious reasons because um, that was also the year that Mafia Three came out, and I feel like if there was any open world game from 2016 I was going to play, it was going to be Mafia Three, not yeah. Watchdogs Two. Um, I beat fucking Watch Dogs 1. Yeah, that's one of my favorite podcast segments was you explaining the whole plot of Watch Dogs 1 to me because I had given up on that game fairly early on. You know, I I had more free time back then. Remember when Watch Dogs was the game that everyone was excited for for the Xbox One and PS4? Yep. Because that that was the game that Ubisoft showed that everyone was like, that's a next-gen game. That's it. That's the first next-gen game we've seen. Interesting. Um... I think they're going to talk... There's, like, some ongoing Ubisoft games like Rainbow Six Siege and For Honor. Last year, they did a big For Honor expansion pack. So I bet we... I don't know if they there's going to be a huge thing. I bet they talk about those because those games are very popular. Um, at least Rainbow Six Siege, I know that people really like still. Um, Splinter Cell. There have been weird teases about Splinter Cell, but I've not been able to get a sense if those teases are, oh, they're actually making Splinter Cell... Or if they're, like, jerking around with people that want a new Splinter Cell. I can't get a sense of it. It's very annoying. I want a new Splinter Cell. I feel like this is four podcast, E3 podcasts in a row where I've said, they're definitely going to do the new Splinter Cell. That's going to be the game they end their press conference with. 
and I've been wrong every single time, and I'll never learn from history because they're going to end their press conference this year with a new Splinter Cell. I vehemently disagree. I think Splinter Cell is dead, and the fact that my proof of that is that Ghost Recon Wildlands is getting a goddamn sequel. But there, there was this. But there was a DLC for Ghost Recon Wildlands that had Sam Fisher in it. Yeah, it's not happening, Sean. I'm sorry. No, but they don't get it. Michael Ironside. They had him in the studio. They're going to fucking airlift Michael Ironside onto the stage. And he's going to be wearing the goggles and go. And he's going to say, "Kept you waiting, huh?" Even though that's the Splinter or the Metal Gear thing, but they're not making any more Metal Gear games, so Splinter Cell might as well say it. All right, that's just going to happen. Um, do you think we get the the epic third date between Eve Guma and Shigeru Miyamoto? From of Nintendo? course we do. What project? Is, do we get a Rabbids, Mario and Rabbids 2? That was my... I, I think it's possible that comes out. That game has gotten, like, so many sales, and, like, it got really good DLC. And People really love that game. It's so a great it game. Sense. Yeah, I think, I think so. I don't know if it'll be literally called Mario plus Rabbids 2, or if it will be, like, some other kind of, like, Rabbids and, like, a bigger Nintendo crossover yeah. or something. But Super like, Smash Rabbids. Yes, <laughs> Super Smash Rabbids. I don't know. I think they're going to do something with Nintendo because Mario and Rabbids was a success. Um, I would love a Mario and Rabbids too. It would be my favorite part of the show. It's been a couple of years. Why not? Yeah, I think it would make sense for it to be that. I think that if it's not that, there's going to be something. Like, yeah, they've had two years in a row of Miyamoto on stage with yes. Yuma, and they are their best friends and lovers. And last year, remember? <laughs> last year, remember they did the whole uh, band performance for the Donkey Kong stuff. Yes, sure. I want something like that. Yes. So I, I, and that's all I've got for Ubisoft. I think it's going to be a bit of a slow year for them as well. I, there is a chance. That there's some big surprise game that's going to be like the watchdogs of the last generation that's like, here's clearly a next-gen game, new IP. I don't think they're going to do it because I don't think Ubisoft is the same company they were like eight years ago, but there's a chance. So throwing yes. that out there. Um, Square Enix, they have said they're going to talk about the Marvel's Avengers game. Finally, they decided we should actually talk about video games we're making instead of doing what the fuck they did last year. Um, that's going to be their... Dying Light 2, um, they have said that that's going to be there as well, so we'll see more of that game. Uh, they taught, they did that weird trailer, like, tease for Babylon's Fall, which is that Platinum Games game that's not the Platinum game game that was on the Switch thing, that was on their E3 thing, because Platinum Games just makes a million fucking games, apparently. Yeah, it's Astral Chain is the Switch one, and it's yes. coming out August 30th, so that's actually upon us. Yes, so Babylon's Fall, I bet we'll see, actually get, like, a full gameplay thing for that and find out what the fuck that game is. Um, Final Fantasy VII Remake, they will talk about that almost certainly. Uh, Dragon Quest Builders 2 is going to be out relatively soon, so yes. I bet they talk about that. And if there's ever going to be DLC for Kingdom Hearts 3, I think they would also show up for this show. We'd and probably get a little bit more about Dragon Quest XI-S. It doesn't have a date yet, that's true. so yeah, I think we get a point. date Yeah, Dragon that. Quest XI's. Um, do you think we find out what Yokotaro has been working on? Do they make my day at this E3 and show me a Yokotaro game? I hope so. I hope so too. I I don't think it's time quite yet, but yeah. I don't know. I'm not I, hugely confident on it either. Because how can you predict the timeline of Yoko Taro? Yeah, it's a good point. Like I have no idea. He's... Like if it were anyone else, I'd say yes because it's been two or three years. But like, it's Yoko Taro. He could be on the fucking moon for all we know. Yeah, but he, I mean, he's, we know he lives in another dimension. So yeah, we already know that that's true. So. Who knows? I'm. I would like a Yokotaro game. I'm just like hoping for like something at this E3 that I get very excited for. That's something we don't know about, and the Yokotaro game would be would be that. If they just full on announce Nier Automata two, how hard would you, you know, 
we would I think it would be hard for us to do podcasts because I would be so exhausted okay let's just put it that way um and then moving on to Tuesday morning with Nintendo um we will definitely get a lot of Animal Crossing we will definitely get Pokemon Sword and Shield um I bet we see whoever the next character is for Super Smash Brothers yes that is apparently not Goku Goku because Sakurai can go fuck himself (laughs) um we will presumably get some more Fire Emblem Three Houses. We'll probably get something from Damon X Machina, like some sort of trailer or something. Because I feel like both those games are coming out kind of soon, right? Uh, Fire Emblem is July. Damon X Machina does not technically have a date, but they're still promising summer yeah. to late summer. So I think Damon X Machina gets a date. Yes. Um, I don't think we'll see any more Mario Maker 2 other than a brief like reminder that it's coming out because they've done other Mario Maker stuff. I'm also... Pokemon Sword and Shield might be getting its own event. I was looking That's this true. up. Yeah. Um, I think they'll show it in the Treehouse thing afterwards. That's what they did with Sun and Moon. Yeah, so, so when I'm... So like yeah I'm not necessarily saying all these things are going to be the Nintendo Direct I'm saying yeah. these things are things that Nintendo is going to talk about in the orbit of E3 um, because Animal Crossing will definitely be in the Direct but I agree that I think yeah. Pokemon Sword and Shield has a chance of slipping into another thing yeah well because Pokemon Company likes to do its own thing yeah um, Animal Crossing will definitely be the centerpiece because it's the it's the big unknown like there's yes. a lot of other ones like Link's Awakening that I know we'll see more of yep um but I, I think it's the only one that, that we know is coming, but we haven't seen the game itself. Yeah, so Animal Crossing, I agree, is going to be their centerpiece. Um, there's definitely going to be some like indie games, Switch port stuff yep. is going to be there. Um, like you said, Link's Awakening remake, I bet we see something more from that. Um, Luigi's Mansion 3. Yeah, totally. I think we'll see Luigi's Mansion 3. Um, I'd kind of forgotten about that one. but Yes, me it, too. That was one that I had looked at my notes and been like, oh yeah, Luigi's Mansion, they talked about that. I mean, honestly, Nintendo has the most stacked set of exclusives for 2019. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So like, Because they're, they're like... Because they're out of phase with everyone else, yeah. they're at the middle of now the Switch thing, whereas everyone else is winding down for the PS4 and Xbox One. So yeah, they're going to like own this E3... Uh, Sorry, because Sony just backed out, yeah. and Microsoft, I think, is just a little bit too far away for their new console stuff, which is what they've got. Um, and then we've got, do you think they will talk about Shin Megami Tensei V, which they have not said, I feel like, anything about since the announcement of the Switch? No, 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 because when they announced the Switch, they just showed that it was a Megami Tensei game. Yeah. Then it was either last E3 or the year before that, they said it's actually five, and we got a new trailer. Oh, okay. Remember that? So I think there will be Shin Megami Tensei five news, yes. Okay, so Shin think... Megami Tensei five. Yeah. Um, do you think we see more Labo stuff? Labo, no. Labo VR. They never show Labo stuff in directs, really. Like like the the big E three ones, at least. I think Animal Crossing is going to be a Labo VR exclusive. That's that's <laughs> what we found out. Um, they did just add it to Smash Bros. Sean. So I when I get back is. to Iowa, I have to play that. Uh, um, my my condolences. It looked dumb. It um, did. It, it was that thing where I loaded up the trailer for that level VR thing. It was like, oh, God, like, that is some fuzzy fucking looking footage. I can't imagine what it would look like if I strapped it to my face. Um, and then the last thing is they have been very silent on Bayonetta 3 for a long time. Bayonetta 3. I don't think we hear about it. Yeah. I think it is. I think they're working on it, but, but you did just read off like three different games Platinum is making. Yeah. So no, I don't think it's time yeah. yet. Yeah, I agree. There's something, even though it's been a long time, I don't think we see it. We're obviously not going to see any more of Metroid Prime 4 because um, they've been development. <sighs> there is the question, do we finally get our goddamn Metroid Prime trilogy port? Oh yeah, I didn't even put that on the list. I because think every single Direct, it's rumored, it has been leaked by every retailer. I'm still, I don't know if it's real or not. I want it. I'm not going to make any more predictions because my heart has been broken too much, but I do want it. Yeah, so I'm going to say no, it's not there. 
Um, one other thing I thought of, do you think they talk about any of their Nintendo Switch Online, like any expansions to the online thing? I have no hope anymore. Tetris 100. Yeah. The sequel to Tetris 99. I mean, people keep predicting we're finally going to get SNES in September, a full year after the launch of Nintendo Switch Online, which sounds about right if they are ever going to do it. So maybe we get that here. I just don't know. Nintendo does not do a lot of service announcements at E3. They tend yeah. to just focus on games. Like, the other big X-Factor is the new Switch hardware we know is coming. The, the Switch oh, right, Mini. yeah. And I, I don't know, because again, that's not usually an E3 thing for them. Because Nintendo does these updates year-round. They do them every couple months. So it's always kind of hard to predict what's going to be in this show versus the Nintendo Direct in August, let's say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel like for sure we get more Smash DLC... We get Animal Crossing, we get Pokemon, we get Luigi's Mansion, we get Link's Awakening, um, we get Damon X Machina, we get a little Fire Emblem, I think we get a surprise or two, but I don't know beyond that. Yeah, I agree. It's so, a, I mean, again, it's a lot, and they keep us updated pretty regularly, so we shall see. I'm curious if they have anything that's as big as a pleasant surprise as Link's Awakening was at the, the Spring Direct, Yeah, but we shall see. Yeah, so that's that wraps up like most of it for me. Um, one other thing, where was it? Because I was scrolling through some of my E3 2018 notes to see if there's anything, any last things from there that I forgot about. Um, oh, uh, Cyberpunk 2077. I think they've they've said that they're going to be there in like showing demos. Um, so I bet we get a thing at Microsoft's press conference. Yeah, that makes sense. That's where it was announced, if you remember, at the very end of Microsoft's press conference uh, last year. So. Yeah, like I bet we get some sort of trailer there, um, and it's, indications are that that's going to be a 2020 game. Are there any shows in particular you're looking forward to? Microsoft's. Um, I'd want to see anything they have to say about new consoles. Um, yeah. And it would be very cool if they went really big and very bold with it. I don't know if they're in a position to actually do that, but Microsoft has the most to prove. Um Although I feel like I've been saying that for a long time and most of Microsoft's press conferences have disappointed me. I mean, last year you had all the announcements of the studio purchases, but the problem with that was that most of the studio purchases were, like felt a little bit sort of perfunctory to me of like, oh, you bought the guys who make Forza Horizon. Like, yeah, they've been making Xbox exclusive. You bought the people who made We Happy Few, again, that nobody likes. So, like, I've been pretty down on, like, how Microsoft has actually actually executed on their stuff. But it feels like they're slowly kind of getting there. So it'd be cool to see them. I think they have an opportunity to do something very big and crazy. It just is up to them to have, like, the lineup to be able to do it. Yeah, Microsoft just... I'm going to have to watch Halo continue its slow death, and that makes me sad. Um, Nintendo I'm looking forward to, because I'm always looking forward to Nintendo, because my Switch is right here. I love it. And I think Nintendo is going to have the most solid show of anybody. Like, they've just got so much shit on their plate. And I think... And I'm I'm very excited, even though I'm not an Animal Crossing guy, I don't even own a Switch, I'm at least excited and curious to see what Animal Crossing on Switch is going to be. It's a gritty reboot. Yes. It's an Unreal Engine 4. The Animal Crossing. Yep. It's a collaboration with FromSoft. It's really hard now. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. It's, you know, the first thing you see is Isabella's decapitated head on a spike. It's <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. It's real fucked up. All right. Anything else about E3 before we move on? You know, it's going to be a lighter year this year, um, which means that we hopefully are not going to have to do 500 podcasts on it. Maybe we'll do like the one or maybe two. We'll see how much there is. We'll definitely do one um, right after. Yes. But we're not doing the daily uh, podcast like we did last year. Just no need for it. It was fun yeah. last year, but we don't need to this time. Uh, yeah, so that's E3. You want to talk some Godzilla? Let's talk about Gojira. 
All right, so Sean, we are talking about Godzilla, King of the Monsters, uh, directed by Michael Dougherty, uh, written and directed by him. Um, so this is the third in the Universal, no, not Universal, it's Warner's. Legendary. Yeah, Legendary yeah. Monsters Shared Universe thing, whatever they're trying. Uh, trying to make actual kaiju movies in America and not yeah. kaiju movies that are embarrassed to be kaiju movies like 1998's Godzilla. Yes, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, to recap really quick, 2014 Godzilla, I like that movie a lot. You... So, yeah, so I re-watched it um, in advance of this movie, which was a good choice because this movie is way more of a straight sequel to that movie in terms of specific plot details than I think anyone would expect. Like, yeah. the whole thing um, with uh, Dr. Sarazawa's watch is not, like, re-explained in this movie at all, that it was his dad's watch from the Hiroshima um, nuke thing, which was something I had forgotten. Um, that they talk about in the first movie. So, yeah, the first movie is, I think, it's it's a Gareth Roberts, Roberts movie in the sense of, like, there are scenes that are really fucking awesome, but the movie's story and plot, especially after the Brian Cranston character dies after the first 30 minutes, is just so hollow and nothing. And it's a movie that, to me, like, doesn't know what kind of Godzilla movie it wants to be, because it feels like it mostly wants to be a just Godzilla stomping on a city movie. Um, but then it also has all the stuff of the Mutos and has Godzilla be sort of a heroic figure and just can't quite settle on one interpretation. And it ends up just being a very kind of overall kind of meh experience for me. Yeah, and I liked it more, but I totally get that. Um, then we have Kong Skull Island, yes. which we did not review when it came out. No, I don't think I didn't quite catch that one in theaters. Yeah, um, which, and I liked that movie a lot. It yeah. was a really cool big screen experience. I think Jordan Vogt Roberts did a terrific job with all the monsters, Kong especially. It has no illusions about what it is. It gets to the point. It's got the right kind of human characters. It does not, I feel like, waste time in getting us to the monsters. Like, it, gets, it, it, it gives you what you want. It doesn't give you a lot of what you don't. It was also very funny and, I think, stylish with all the yeah. 70s stuff. Um, so I liked that one. Yeah, I like that one a lot also. I think it has some pacing problems that by the time you get kind of towards the end, I think it kind of runs out of juice a little bit. And I think it doesn't fully know what to do with King Kong like a little bit like because it, it's obviously a very different interpretation of King Kong I'm glad that they don't do the damsel in distress stuff but like they gestured to it a couple of times because um, Brie Larson has kind of a relationship with Kong in the movie yeah but they don't really commit to no. actually doing it and I think that's part of that's that's where like that movie is like very entertaining to me but like it's maybe not as good as it could be because it doesn't yeah. quite fully commit to trying to do that full thing but it's trying to do something very hard where it's trying to do something with King Kong that King Kong was not designed to be. King Kong is not a kaiju movie, really. It kind of predates that genre, and it's American. So. I think it's super impressive in that regard. Yes, yeah, because yeah. It's, like, it's a super entertaining movie. Like People yeah. should watch it if they have not, for sure. Yeah. And now we have Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Yes. This is the new one where they Legendary got the rights to Rodan and King Ghidorah and Mothra. Yes. Um, and so all the, the big kaiju are here from the big Godzilla team-up movies in Japan. Um, and that's what this is, basically. Yes. It's a Destroy All Monsters movie. It's a, it's a fusion of Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster and Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters, All Out Attack. Like, yes. that's basically what the plot of the movie is. It's a kind of fusion yeah. of those two movies. Not really Destroy All Monsters. Okay, sorry, I meant... I was thinking of Monster Solid. I never remember the full title of Godzilla, Mothra, no. and King Ghidorah. Yeah, because the full title is ridiculous. And yes. it leaves out one of the monsters in the movie, yes. Baragon. Yes. Poor Baragon. Poor Baragon. I love that movie, though. It's, um, it's fucking great. Yeah. Okay, so let's give our thoughts now on King of the Monsters. I... 
it's tough because I think this movie does some things very impressively. The monsters are great when, when you see them. The designs are great. The sound effects are wonderful. The music by Bear McCreary is A+. Yeah. Fantastic. There are some moments I liked. We'll talk spoilers here, so if you haven't seen it, you can go away. But there's the scene with Dr. Serizawa yeah. saving Godzilla. I think it's a great scene. Other than that, I thought this is one of the worst scripts for a Hollywood movie I have ever encountered it is so poorly abysmally written the human stuff is so overwrought it it really felt to me like like this movie could not get the fuck out of its own way it had to overthink every step of the process that is just there are monsters and they fucking fight like get to it and i i just they put all these like a-list amazing actors into it like Kyle Chandler and Vera Farmiga and Ken Watanabe and everyone else they even got for the child character you know the, the like one of the best child stars on the planet yeah. in Millie Bobby Brown and it's like just the writing is so bad you spend so much time with the people and it's so fucking boring and overwrought and then when it gets to the actual fight sequences there are some cool standalone images like big tableaus that I thought were good but the actual fights were totally to me Michael Bay Transformers shake the goddamn camera and make it impossible to see and then I also thought the movie couldn't decide are we human level POV on the monsters where the the fights are going on in the background and we follow the people which is what the 2014 movie did I thought well because it stuck to that or is it more kind of like a Toho style like the the Monsters All Out Attack one, yes. where you really do just get to see From a kaiju fight. From this point fight. forward, because I think we're going to talk about that movie a couple of times, let's just refer to it as GMK, Okay, GMK. that's how most people talk about okay, it. Okay, yeah. GMK, where you really do just get to have some time where you see the monsters fighting full frame. This one, like, the fight sequences were giving me a headache because it's so constantly, like, Godzilla does one cool move against Ghidorah and then cut, and we spend five minutes with the humans, and then, I don't know, it could not decide what it wanted to be in the action. I just, the kaiju stuff, like... It, it meant well. I liked some of it. The best stuff is at the end, but by the time you get there, this movie's so goddamn long, I just wanted to leave. So I don't necessarily disagree with any of your criticisms. Like, one thing that obviously should be noted is I'm the guy who's seen all the Godzilla movies, yeah, yeah. most of them multiple times. So, And I've only seen several of the really good ones. Yeah, you've only you. seen, like, three or four Godzilla movies, and they're all the best ones. Yes. Like, like, literally. Like, I think the only of my top five Godzilla movies you haven't seen is, is Godzilla vs. Godzilla because it's a hard one to see. Yeah. Although I should say, now that I'm reminded of it, Toho has actually put up on their own account on the Internet Archive um, HD rips of all almost all of those movies. So wow. if you, you want to watch Godzilla Mechagodzilla in Japanese, you can now do it. You just have to go on Internet Archive. And, and like I, that's how I watched Gator and the Three-Eyed Monster this morning. Um, rewatched it because I only have the DVD, not the Blu-ray, and it's a better rip that is on that website. So go check out Internet Archive if you want to see some cool Godzilla movies. But um, anyways, yeah, so I've, I'm a huge Godzilla fan, and so your criticisms of the human stuff, I get, I have such an immunity to that because that is how 90% of all, not just Godzilla movies, but like kaiju movies, have those issues. Um, and so there are some things like in particular I think the Bradley Whitford character should have just been cut from oh the god I've, I have mentally blocked that yeah. uh, Bradley Whitford is an actor I like who now if I ever see him in real life I will punch in the face and go to jail for assault because he is the most annoying character in the history of film in this goddamn movie I think that's maybe a little I bit extreme I hated him hated so I didn't obviously I didn't like him I didn't it did, like I just kind of because his character is so non-essential 
I just kind of ignored him. And he's not even the only annoying comic relief character in the movie. There's also the other guy yeah. with the Sarazawa team who makes the racist ass gonorrhea joke. Oh yeah, it's I, like like some of those little like dumb like the dumb comic relief stuff. I mostly ignored because it just felt so inconsequential and, and weird to me. Um, so like those things are definitely problems. But I did like once I got into the movie, and it took me a while. Like I didn't like this movie until the Rodan stuff started happening. Because I think that's when it starts to kind of figure itself out. But I do think the movie has some really interesting ideas. And, and I like the way they present the monsters as being... I, I like that like everybody has a different interpretation of what the monsters are. How they fit into the world. Um, I, I really love their use of King Ghidorah. And them going straight up all out. Like Ghidorah is a fucking space monster. He comes from outer space. He is, it's like what sets him apart from the other monsters is he's not a part of our system. Um, and so all of those details and the way they use this very sort of like spiritual imagery to, to look at the monsters, which is another very GMK kind of touch. Um, all those things, I think, culminated in me to once this movie moves into sort of its final act, once it gets into Sarazawa sacrificing himself, Mothra coming out, Godzilla getting revived and everybody heading towards Boston for the big showdown. I was like 100 percent on board for this movie. And I think. If you can get on board for the movie once it moves into that moment, like the last act of this movie is fucking fantastic. And I came out like with such a like Godzilla high, I think because also the, the credits have that amazing, just utterly fucking astounding uh, cover of the Blue Oyster Cult song Godzilla. And then a really good redo of the Akira Ikufube. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you have, yeah, a bunch of the, the uh, Ikufube score gets done also in the end credits. And then you get an end credits scene that implies that Tywin Lannister is going to make Mecha King Ghidorah, which is very fun for me. <laughs> to be, It's very funny to be watching Game of Thrones for the first time and seeing all this Charles Dance stuff and being like, he is just playing fucking Tywin Lannister in this movie. It is the exact same performance he's giving. Um... But yeah, like so, so I definitely recognize a lot of your issues with the movie, and I think, like honestly, it's that thing of where I am such a huge Godzilla fan that like it's very easy for me to see past some of those problems. And this movie is so clearly made by someone who really loves the Godzilla films and like and is immersed in them in a way that the legendary Godzilla movie was not, or like the, I can't just say that out the twenty fourteen Godzilla movie. Like is is a like Godzilla movie and gets Godzilla in a lot of ways, but I think part of the problem, some of the problems of that movie comes from this lack of engagement with the entire history of Godzilla and it like only feeling aware of one small subsection of it. Whereas this movie feels like if you did a like marathon of millennium era Godzilla movies, which are like Godzilla two thousand, Godzilla versus Megaguirus, Godzilla Final Wars, um, GMK. If, like this movie fits in with all of those because this feels like a movie made by someone who grew up and has lived with Godzilla movies and been a fan of Godzilla their whole life which is what sort of sets apart the Millennium Era movies because those are the ones that were made by people who grew up with Godzilla um, and so there's something about this movie to me that really gets at my Godzilla loving heart that allows me to see past those problems and I think if you do see past those problems there are a lot of interesting themes a lot of great imagery and I think past the Antarctic scene at the beginning, which I would agree is full Michael Bay, bad Transformer stuff, I think after that the action gets a much, much better. And then by the end, I really I like the last action scene of this movie. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, again, I don't disagree with any of that either. Like, I, I think that's all completely valid. And I do, again, like the movie's passion for these monsters is obvious. Yeah. And, you know, there's the scene where Rodan is chasing them down and is like just ripping apart the fighter jets. Yes. That's one of those scenes that I never thought Hollywood would do or do right. And they totally do it right. And yeah. it's really cool. I mean, I just want this dude now to make a full remake of the original Rodan movie. Because all the stuff of the destruction of that city just from Rodan flying over it. And this kind of redo of that scene from the first Rodan movie is really cool with modern effects. Like, yeah. they do a great job with all that stuff. But mostly this movie just... And again, I have not seen all the Godzilla movies. But of the ones I've seen, GMK is one of my favorites. Yes. It really just felt like for most of the movie I wanted to go home and put on my GMK DVD and watch that instead because I actually like the people in that one Mm -hmm. and it's got a good story and you've got cool monster action that I thought was better shot than this but I mean yeah no GMK is a much better movie than this but GMK is one of like the three or four best Godzilla movies ever made which yes it's not a fair fair comparison that director is is outside of Ishiro Honda probably the most talented director for kaiju movies specifically yes it's the same guy who did the Death Note movies which is a fun footnote yes, that and the Gamera trilogy which one day we'll do a Gamera podcast one day that will happen yes um, yeah I don't I just I guess I don't even know all that much what to say I just because I agree the second hour of this movie is much better than the first yeah. like the first hour of this movie needed to be torn down rebuilt ground up it's awful welcome to Godzilla films. okay but like I just yeah but you know Godzilla films they've also made like 30 of them yeah, they're throwing two hundred million dollars at this movie. There are just certain things that, like, even if it is true of some other Godzilla movies, a Hollywood production with this amount of production values shouldn't fuck up this bad at some of the basic things like how characters talk or yeah. how I feel like I just the movie cannot for the longest time gets out of its own fucking way in over explaining the story and just getting into like. All their dumb lingo for it, too, just kind of got on my nerves with, like, the Titans and things like that. And just, like, they, 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 they half wanted it to be serious and half wanted it to be cheesy. And I don't think they, they, they straddle that line very well. Um, you've got all these good actors doing it. Like, this, they should have just gotten fucking popsicle sticks with googly eyes for half the people in this movie. Like, you did not need Kyle Chandler and Vera Farmiga. And it's honestly extra distracting to me that it's them. Because yeah, they I have... guess I haven't seen them in many other movies, okay. so, like, I didn't recognize them. He's coach from Friday Night Lights, so it's like, okay. I know this yeah, dude can act, and it's just... It's, it's yeah, and, and I did not feel the thematic stuff as much as you. I thought it was interesting in the abstract, but I thought the only moment where it came together for me was Sarazawa saving Godzilla and doing yeah. the resurrection. But other than that, there's all this, like, Christian imagery, and there's all this talk of, like, resurrection and stuff, and, like, spirituality that just felt really hollow to me. I don't know. There's something about... So, again, like, this movie is taking a lot of ideas that are in... Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, which is the movie that King Ghidorah comes from. That's the first movie where Godzilla teams up with other monsters. And he teams up with Mothra and Rodan. I re-watched it this morning. It's very good. Um, because that's I think it's the fifth one. So it was when Ichiro Honda was still directing them. Um, and, and that movie has a whole environmental message to it as well. Um, that's more subtle than this one. Um, but the, but like for me, the movie... like. And the spirituality stuff is less about like the Christianity and resurrection. Like it, it plays with those images and motifs, but it's much more about this idea of human arrogance. I feel like, which is like a big religious concept. Um, and like in most of my favorite stories that deal with religion, 
like Frankenstein or Nier Automata, they all tackle this idea of the arrogance that humanity is in control of creation and in control of its own environment when we obviously are not. We are animals as much as everything else. And so those are themes that I really like. Um, and, and I'm not going to tell you that this movie is elegant at executing those themes, but for it's almost like a Star Wars prequels kind of idea where it's like, it may not be elegant at it, but it, at least it is going for it. And especially compared to like the 2014 Godzilla movie and Kong Skull Island that aren't really going for any, especially the 2014 Godzilla movie, that's just like past that first act is kind of all flash and absolutely no substance at all. This movie is trying to get at this idea of that humans are one small part of a larger biosphere of entities on earth and that we need to understand that that role and choose to work symbiotically with everything else the same way that Godzilla works symbiotically with Mothra to defeat like the invasive species of King Ghidorah like again all those things are I think clumsy in the movie but I really appreciate that they are there and in that way it feels like again it feels like it takes that kind of from some of the Heisei era Godzilla movies that the 90s ones that are very clumsy at their execution in some of those ideas but are always going for some sort of interesting idea are always trying to tackle some sort of bigger theme and using Godzilla as a kind of sci-fi palette to address some sort of environmental theme or something like that and that to me is what this movie is doing no and I I, I totally so Sean you know you're not the first person I've heard some of these ideas from yeah. I've definitely heard them the most elegantly from you because you know the most about Godzilla of anyone I've heard talk about this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of me wants to take a second look at the movie, maybe with like a different set of expectations, and just try to see some of this in there, because, yeah. again, like, I, I guess the movie has a really bad opening act. Oh, 100%. Again, I'm not going to try to defend, yeah. like, those areas where the movie fucks up. Again, I cannot stress so how hard I have an immunity to that stuff, is because I rewatched. Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah before I came over here that movie has some fucking slow like you need to get through it before you get to like their weird bargain bin Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator character and then the movie sings because he's amazing it's just it's like and I do think there's something that's a little tough for me to overcome with all of that because there's just because I also just think the movie is way too busy with the number of human characters Mm -hmm. and all that because what it really needs to be about is Kyle Chandler and Sarazawa like those yeah. are the two key figures who, and I guess you could, I I hated the Vera Farmiga character so much, and like because I don't feel like the movie was fully reckoning with the awfulness of what she was doing at mm-hmm. any point, like because I think that's an interesting, I think that's the, the the you want something like that, you know, three part structure where you have yeah. the the true believer Sarazawa, and you have kind of the dark inverse of him in Vera Farmiga, and then in the middle you have Kyle Chandler who isn't sure where to believe. But around them, there's just so much messiness. And I think the first act of the movie does a horrible job establishing where Kyle Chandler is coming from and who he is. Like, his whole thing is just he's out with some wolves in Colorado. And, like, we spend Which, so much... first time ever Colorado in a Godzilla movie. So That's I'm good. happy for that. Yeah. Next time they're going to fight in the Rocky Mountains. Yes. They're, they're going to knock... fucking awesome. Yeah. They're going to knock a mountain over. Yes. I don't know if that's possible, but they're going to do it. They, they've gotten close sometimes. Have Baragon rise from one of the mountains. Yes. That's what he does. Is Baragon in this? I wasn't sure if that was him. No. So okay. they only had the rights to Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, and Rodan. So, so those are all knockoffs. Yeah. One. So all the, like the random monsters they had. Like I could feel... Like this whole movie process of watching this movie to me was this process of feeling... Like I was like a mind melded with the fucking director of like... No, I know, I know what you want to do here. I know that you want this lady to sing the Mothra song. 
We are all on the same page here. You desperately want someone to sing the Mothra song. There is no fucking world in which a Hollywood studio is going to let you spend three minutes having some lady sing the goddamn Mothra song. We all know that you want that to happen. Same thing with they have all the random kaiju that wake up um, and it's a bunch of sort of like one of them is the Mudo. I actually, I do really like the weird woolly mammoth guy. I, I did kind of like the... Yeah. I, I want to see the woolly mammoth guy get beat up by Godzilla at the beginning of the next one. Um, but you could tell that he wanted like Kumunga, who is like the spider monster that's in all those movies, and fucking Baragon and Anguirus, and like some of those like smaller monsters that would just show up in old show year Godzilla movies and just have like a bunch of them at the end. And said so they had to just like make up some weird ones. Yeah. So I forget where I was going with this, but you have those three main characters who yeah. I think should be the core. You have so much stuff around them. Millie Bobby Brown is a really good young actress, yeah. and I liked her character to a certain degree. There's no real thematic point for her existence, and I think it creates a lot of sound and fury with that. And because I thought at the beginning that she was going to be the main character, and this was going to be like a child-eye view, which which these movies have done at some point in Japan. Yeah. Um, Gamera does a lot of that, right? Yes, yeah. That was I for I thought at first that it was going to be full like Gam like that she's going to have a Gamera thing with Mothra. Yeah. Where Gamera has a like spiritual connection with the protagonist, which I would have loved that. That would have yeah. been a choice. But I just think like they kind of just threw the fucking kitchen sink at the wall with human characters as well as monsters, and it's all kind of fighting for attention. And again, the first act is just so bad. It kind of left this sour taste in my mouth where even when you start getting to the good stuff, I couldn't fully enjoy it. I did definitely feel it when you get to the Sarazawa stuff and resurrecting Godzilla because the movie mostly gets out of its own way and just lets that play out yeah. and doesn't have Bradley Whitford coming in and making horrible jokes or anything. I just... Also, like, Ken Watanabe is Ken Watanabe. Yes, and, yeah. and yes, I'm glad he has now been in two Godzilla movies. Mm -hmm. that's, that's just good. That's good for humanity. Yeah. Um, he's created a full-on meme with Let Them Fight, and in this movie he has that beautiful, beautiful sequence under the sea where he saves Godzilla. And he says in Japanese, goodbye, old friend. Sarama Tomoyo. That is, a, that is a great moment. That's, yeah. I mean, and then Godzilla rises out of the ocean with the Ifukube score. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is an all-timer moment. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, it's just so much shoe leather to get there. And I guess I don't know what to say other than... I know that that is kind of par for the course for some movies like this. You you say some. You should say most. most Again, okay. we should stress, you've only seen mostly the really good Godzilla movies. But, I can, but okay, most people going to see this in theaters this weekend are oh, in my no. boat. I, again, I've, I think the point I'm making is that this is way more of a Godzilla movie than a mass audience is, I think, probably willing to accept. Yeah. Because... It turns out the Godzilla movies are really fucking hard to make, and they most of them fall into the same pits because I think they're really hard. It's very difficult to balance all those elements. Um, and it's one of the things that makes the 2014 Godzilla movie really interesting is that it's like in inverse of what you expect in that the first act is fucking fantastic because that's all the stuff with Brian Cranston, and then they make the most inexplicable choice any script I've ever seen make, which is killing that fucking character, and then the movie's completely lost. And in most Godzilla movies, it's the reverse. Most Godzilla movies, the first act is very meandering. The second act, it starts to kind of build up. And then the third act is unbelievable. If it's a good one. Or if it's one of the better ones. If it's a really good one, all, the, all of it's good. But like the average level Godzilla movie that you like enjoy, it's, it's this kind of arc where then like it starts really weird. It starts to kind of build up in the middle. Um, usually like at the beginning of the second act it's a little bit more exciting because that's when you get like the first fight and it kind of falls a little bit and then it's like crescendos at the end and it's like oh my god I can't believe this movie's awesome yeah you know I guess one of the other ones that's in my head is, that you've always put in like the middle of the pack is Godzilla mm -hmm. 2000 yeah that's that's I think that's a little bit like middle up 
Okay, yeah. middle up. Yeah. Um, but that's one I've seen several times. Yeah. And that one also has probably too much shoe leather to get to the fights and yeah. stuff. But I also like the people in it. I remember like just really like their interest like not that they're like deep, interesting characters, yeah. but I like them. And that is something with the Godzilla films I've seen and enjoyed. I just kind of like being around the people when they're there, even if, you know, it's not the best part of the movie. I actively dis- every person in this movie is stupid and bad except Ken Watanabe and maybe Sally Hawkins. I think the only I, I only really feel that for like the Bradley Whitford character. I actually kind of like I like the main three the the family um, because because you said earlier that the Millie Bobby Brown character has no reason to exist. I don't think that's true. I think like they take too long to play that card. But I think when she there's something about when that part where she leaves, she takes the the orca device that can communicate with the monsters, and she goes to Fenway Park, and like that whole sequence where when she just fucking screams at King Ghidorah at the top of her lungs, and Godzilla shows up. There's something about that moment where there's a parallelizing between those between her and Godzilla that really works for me. Of she's the character that like the, the of that our two main characters on like either side of the fence have to convince that the dad has to be convinced himself but he has to be able to pull the daughter towards him and the mom's trying to keep her with with herself and it's like that moment where she decides to jump ship is like the turning point for that fight where like the fight can truly start there's something about that that i think i need to see the movie again to kind of put it all together there's something about that that like instinctively works really well for me and that like that moment really landed for me a lot i like that moment a lot and it's got one of the best shots of the movie where she turns and smiles as godzilla is coming yes yeah but also that shot would have hit me harder if i'd gotten a better sense of what they were fucking trying to do with the character through the first 90 minutes of the movie because it is like mom i thought you were going to exterminate all the humans in a nice way like what the because the, the like vera farmiga in in the scene where she gives the like videotape message about what she's doing comes off as such an utter lunatic. It is so far. Of I like, don't know. We're gonna we're gonna wipe out every city and then vegetation will grow. Like it is so far on the like bioterrorist domain that it also rings totally false when she and Tywin Lannister fight. Like I feel like they stack the deck so hard against her that when they start doing the redemption stuff, I'm like, you tried to kill the planet. Like that's well save the planet, but kill all the humans. Like there's there's a certain level where like I don't know. They didn't need to go that far with it because I also don't really believe the daughter would be that into it. Because I, I don't. Because the way I interpreted it was well, one. I think it's important to note in the year 2019. There's something about me of like, yeah, no, kill most of the people. Like we're fucked. We're fucked. So kill most of the people. If we could rebuild everything, like we're so fucked. Unfuck. Someone should unfuck us. Like I don't actually think that we should murder most people on the planet. But you know, if Godzilla says it, it's going. It's going to happen. So fucking a plan would be nice um at some point and but her plan this is, is going to be your political platform yeah, when I you mean, run for congress yeah it's going to happen a plan would be nice but her plan is not like obviously a lot of people will die with what she is saying but one i think her thing is like these those people are going to die sooner rather than later either way her thing is that she wants to be able to control it which is another form of human arrogance of thinking we can and she's short of the she's trying to couch it in the same kind of language that Sarazawa uses of like oh we're going, we're trying to restore a balance but she wants she wants to be the one in control of the balance um and that's where it obviously goes wrong and she ends up following down this path that leads to no like you you can't like the whole point of the balance is that you can't fucking control it um which is why you end up pushing it 
in the other direction because you're trying to achieve the balance in this like very arrogant way. But I think her plan as she presents it is something where I like, I do buy that she believes it. I do buy that she believes like, no, like, yeah, there's going to be suffering that's going to happen, but the benefit is going to so tremendously outweigh the, the risk. Because again, like we are right now in 2019, staring down the barrel of mass extinction on the planet earth. And climate change is basically at the point that we can't do anything about it or like the only solutions we have are so unrealistic that they're never going to be put into place. And any solution is a temporary fix. And we've already driven like such a large percentage of the animals on earth towards to the point of extinction or past the point of extinction. That's like, she's not wrong. It's just the way she's going about it is so extreme. And so maybe it's because like I'm so far on the like a we're so fucked side of it already that like i'm i'm willing to listen to her more maybe than you are and i can see why a little kid if like you are living with your mom this whole time and you have the trauma from losing your brother uh from like in the godzilla attack and we do see like from the first scene that she is like wavering and she's concerned like she's sending that email to her dad that's like i'm worried about mom like something weird's going on um like, like I, I buy that dynamic, I think, more than you did. Two thoughts. Okay. One, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. It's just that you're presenting it in a much clearer and more workable fashion than the movie itself does. That might be true, yeah. Like, if you did the screenwriting pass where it's like, okay, let's clean these ideas up and present them in a workable way, I'd probably enjoy the movie more. Second, I think it's not just the literal language, but just the way that scene is shot with like the big video, big brother video screen stuff. There's just a certain level of cinematic language they're doing there that makes her look like a lunatic. That is, that if you wanted to present the idea you're presenting, it could be different. Like we don't actually have the scene where she sits down with her daughter and explains it, which I yeah. feel like is a giant missing piece of the movie. If we're to buy that the daughter doesn't jump as soon as she hears, oh, you want San Francisco to happen everywhere. That's where my brother died. That's fucked up. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't think her, the way she, again, like, I think, like, her plan would result, and obviously does result in the, like, mass, mass death of people. I think, like, she's so fixated on the benefit that when she presents it to her daughter, like, and I agree that you probably should see that scene, but there's something about the way that, that Millie Bobby Brown plays it that I do just sort of accept, like, yeah, like, you, if you present the positive side of this argument, like, I, I can see why this, this kid would go along with it. Like, and again, like all of the execution of this side is of the movie is very messy. And so for me, like I, I, my like Godzilla immunity or something, I think allows me to kind of pierce through some of that messiness and kind of get at what the movie is trying to go for. And if I think you can do that, there are a lot of really interesting ideas there, which carried me to the point where once you get to Rodan coming out, and then especially once the, the Sarazawa stuff happens, I feel like, as I said earlier, if you have bought into the movie and accepted the ideas they're showing, even if like it's done in a messy way, I think the like the execution of it in the final act of the movie is really, really well done. Yeah, I would I would like to watch this movie again, but maybe arrive at the theater forty minutes late. <laughs> sure, yeah. You know, like or or on DVD, just fast forward the first forty five minutes or so. So let's talk about the monsters. Yes. Since they are so awesome. I mean they did. I think got all of them right, right? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. They did a great job giving all four of them like really distinct senses of personality that are all drawn from sources from the the source material. But like they do a bit of their own thing with it. I like. There's been like suggestions of the like each head of Ghidorah kind of having its own little like personality. They've done some things like that, but I like this movie 
goes further with that idea. And I love the introduction of Ghidorah where the middle head is kind of like, no, like kind of grabbing the horn of the left head is like, no, like pay attention to this idiot. Like we're and like the middle head kind of driving the boat and the other heads like kind of being like looking around and being kind of dazed. Like all that stuff I think is really cool. Um, again, they should just remake the fucking Rodan movie because they get Rodan's, that Rodan scene is so fucking cool. Yes, like it's, it's really just good. it's just amazing in, in terms of like a mass destruction scene um, that executes on that monster's abilities. Um, Godzilla is awesome as always, but like for me, it's it's them nailing Mothra as well. They has have them that... like I would never have thought an American movie would be able to do Mothra. Um, no, right. Mothra was my favorite part of Mothra is my favorite character in this movie. Yeah, human or monster. I loved Mothra. I loved everything with Mothra, except the first scene is like weirdly slow in revealing like Moth like. Why don't we get Mothra's wings in the beginning of the movie? No, because that's what you do. Because Mothra always starts as a larva. Okay. And then and then Mothra has to be in a cocoon. And then Mothra has to hatch from the cocoon. Okay. And then help Godzilla. And then sacrifice herself. That's what Mothra does like every that's fair, time. That's fair. That's fair. But yes, I, I think the CGI on Mothra was beautiful. The music around Mothra was great. Again, using some of the Isaku-based yeah. themes. Um and then Mothra gets the moment of the final fight to me, which is when Rodan appears to be winning, and then like like a fucking like John McClane moment in Die Hard, yeah. just stabs Rodan with their fucking pincers yeah. and wins. Yeah, Mothra's great. Yeah, Mothra's amazing. And and again, it's the thing of where like I think Mothra is a character that I think Hollywood has a hard would have a I would have expected Hollywood to have a hard time executing on because it's one like Mothra is like the you know sort of feminine kaiju like that's that sort of was the original pitch was how can we like do a very different kind of monster that has that sort of grace to it um and that's what Mothra is and I think like your general expectation going into a kaiju thing is that like that just doesn't fit but there's something about Mothra that like when you get Mothra right it can really make one of these movies and I think when they when they cut back to the waterfall and you hear the bum 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 and you get like the drum beat from the Mothra song that is like very distinctive and I realized oh they're doing the fuck they're doing Mothra music because up to that point they had done there'd been little hints of some Ivakube stuff but they hadn't done like a full Ivakube song and getting that and realizing oh shit and that was where I was like are they going to are they going to have someone sing the Mothra song no, they didn't. Again, I can like uh, virtually guarantee you that is something the director like pushed for because you don't get this far without like at least <laughs> asking if you could do the Mothra song. But they do do the twins, and this is like this is like where they get so they try to jam so much Godzilla into this fucking movie. Oh, um, by the way, I totally missed until I looked it up online later that Zhang Ji was supposed to be playing twins. I yes. just thought that was the same character, and I was like, why is she in two places? No, so because in the thing that where I realized it because that the first part of the movie I was with you where I was kind of confused like are those two different like what's going on like why is she both at the Mothra base and on the sort of like helicarrier thing, but then the one on the helicarrier like. Um, I think she's talking to the, the main dude and she like shows him because her whole role is that she's the one who studies myths and is like explaining all the myths side of it um, and she shows that her family has been a part of Monarch for like two or three generations and when she's showing pictures it's pictures of twins all throughout like it's like three or four generations of twins all mysteriously without husbands so I don't know I'm not sure how that worked out um, artificial insemination sure like but but it was something of where like 
the implication there is that it is like the same sort of infant island thing from the the Godzilla and Mothra movies of you have these like twin priestesses that summon Mothra and I I like to me the implication is that like if you went back a million years or whatever when the Titans or the Kaiju were like sort of dominating the earth originally that like this lady and her twin are like direct descendants of some line of priestesses like that to me is like the direct implication having seen all these Godzilla movies and, and what they're playing with and and they would be the people who would be singing the song and so like them finding ways to sneak the twins in there um and and do the gods or, and do the Mothra music and have Mothra hatch and do the full Mothra story of starting as a lava or, or larva cocooning yourself at the middle point of the movie hatching at the end to save the day and sacrifice yourself so that Godzilla can win like that's happens in literally three or four different Godzilla movies um because it's a really good beat and it's like there's something about the repetition of that cycle with Mothra and then having the implication in the ending credits of that there is another egg because there's always another Mothra egg um like that stuff works really well for me and I 100% represent or, or understand that the only reason that works for me is that I am a huge fan of these movies which I think is something that's going to be a difficulty for most people seeing this is like there's stuff that this movie does that if you haven't don't have a big affection for Godzilla, I think like and you miss it. I don't think there's much more. There's not a lot to that scene that you're going to be able to latch on to. And I guess here's what I would say: like as much as all these things are true and it does them well, I think the difference between the version of the movie we have and the really great version of this movie is that this movie makes you the big Godzilla, big kaiju fan feel a lot of these things because you've experienced them before. Yeah. I don't know if it will make people who are not big kaiju fans feel these things. There's no reason it couldn't do that. Yeah. I think a really accomplished version of this would make me feel like a lot of the things, like like I would be describing these, and then you'd be like, yeah, that's every Godzilla movie. You should watch this, this, and this. And I don't know if someone walking out of this is going to be like, all that was so awesome. Which Japanese ones should I go see that that this is taking from? And I guess that's, that's to me, where it falls flat, mm-hmm. is that... It, it does a lot of referencing and, and Easter eggs and stuff. And that's all really cool. It's, again, amazing that a Hollywood movie does Mothra at all. Like, that yes. Mothra is named in the movie is wild. That they do the full Mothra story. And I do think Mothra is the character they come closest to. There will be new Mothra fans at the end of this movie. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I don't know about some of the other monsters. And I don't know about the overall experience of seeing the monsters together. Because it is kind of sloppy around the edges. And I, I feel like you would need the firmer overall punch to like get that. Sort of like, I don't know, Star Trek 09, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, getting mm-hmm. people interested in other Star Trek because it was so good at its own thing that it's not exactly like old Star Trek, obviously. Yeah. It's more action-oriented, but it like gets the, the Kirk, Spock, McCoy thing so right or something that like you yeah. never had to see Star Trek to like be like, I love these characters. And I'm like, I do too. Here's five episodes of the original series you should watch. And I would know if they liked Star Trek 09, they might like those too. I guess that's what I would want from this movie, and I don't yeah. know if it nails that. I, yeah, like it. I think it definitely doesn't nail that, and I think that is an issue with the movie because, like, like seriously, the movie just does not feel like it's calibrated for a mass audience. Like, the movie feels like it's calibrated for people like me, which is probably not a good idea for for most people. For me, I'm like totally happy with it. Like, obviously, I think the movie could be a lot of better in places, but if it like. You know, again, I had I felt so pumped walking out of the movie theater at the end of this movie. Well, because I will also say, it knows when to end. Like, oh, yeah, I that's... do very much like that it ends with everyone bowing down to Godzilla, Godzilla yelling, and then just smash the title. Yeah. 
Um, like it does not. I was worried we were going to have to get five to ten minutes of like the father and daughter like at the, the like the grave of Vera Farmiga and like a big I don't know some kind of big like yeah. scene with the government again. And luckily, no. Godzilla movies, true Godzilla movies, almost never do that. Like true Godzilla movies, almost always end with like the fight is over. Um, the movie's basically done. Like the fight yeah. is over. We'll have like two minutes of Godzilla like swimming away or something happening, and then like here's like this is like the level where like one of my major disappointments was disappointments with the movie is that they didn't have the kanji character for Owaru to pop up in the middle of the screen over that image of Godzilla roaring into the sky because that's that again I can almost guarantee fucking to you the director asked for that and they're like no what no like you can't no you can't put a big Japanese kanji character over the end of this movie like that's ridiculous I mean the gods they do have the katakana gojira under the title logo, which is yeah. really cool. Which is good. Or did you also catch when they go to, like, the Atlantis kind of city and they have one of the tablets of Gojira? It's it's only there for, like, half of a second, but you can see on the very edge of it, it's just written Katakana Gojira. No, I didn't. It's very funny to me that for, obviously, for 99% of the audience, either they don't even see it at all or if they see it, it's like, oh, that's some weird language. And then for me, it's like, apparently like the ancient Atlantis people just like wrote Japanese they had the same writing system this is a big they wrote post-war katakana yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and, and they're just you know they thought this thing kind of looks like a gorilla and it kind of looks like a whale so let's combine the English word gorilla and the Japanese word kujida for whale and that's the portmanteau and that's how we make gojida which is something I think of every single time Ken Watanabe says gojida in this movie it's like how silly the actual origin of the name Gojira is compared to Godzilla, which has all the like the god spiritual stuff like built into that name, and and it's like that's not really where the name comes from, it's, but it's pretty good. Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, yeah, I I also think there's just like a there's a tonal thing with me in this where I feel like they're they're not quite sure how pulpy this should be, hmm. and I felt that a lot in the acting and the writing, where like there are lines that I think delivered differently, I would have like kind of pumped my fist at. But just felt like they were slightly out of place. Like I think the best example is Vera Farmiga at the end with "Long Live the King." Like I liked it in theory more than I liked it in delivery, mm-hmm. and I feel like part of that is that, like I wanted more of like an an MCU or like DC CW show kind of vibe of like let's just go full camp and let's mm-hmm. really let like like we're not going to have subtext we're just going to let the characters say the things in like bright bold pastel comic book pulp fashion and i think the movie kind of wavered between that and more of like a hollywood michael bay style sort of attempt at a sort of like heightened realism mm-hmm. and i feel like that line being straddled was a little awkward to me and i think that's part of how if they they continue trying to do these kaiju movies that's kind of the roadmap you want to take it's just let it all be on its sleeves a little more yeah, because I, because I just don't know if I would generally just because like I don't think the tone of this movie is ever particularly pulpy, because I also just don't think that that's like a nat- a particularly natural tone for Godzilla. Like, and I just I'm not sure what to say though because yeah. it's like because I, I agree a lot of this is like a Japanese kaiju movie. I just think it works differently. Like Hollywood is not Japan, yeah. And there are some things that just work in a Japanese cultural and cinematic setting that if you do the same thing in Hollywood, isn't going to work. And I think you have to find whatever equivalent will work for that. And I just thought there were a lot of points in this where, where I wasn't feeling it. But also, I'm not the Godzilla fan on this podcast. Yeah. So your opinion matters more in some sense on this one. I mean, I think that, I don't think it's about an opinion mattering more. I think it's just like, what audience are you 
is yeah. this movie really aiming for? And, and I think it's like... Well, sadly, it's not aiming for you because there's not that many people and it wouldn't recoup exactly, the budget. Yeah, like, again, I'm, I'm saying that it's like... <laughs> You know, my job is not to have this movie make a bunch of money. It's yeah. like, like I mean, I care about the movie being successful because I, I like the movie. I want there to be more movies like this. Um, but like, ultimately, that's not like really my concern. So it's like, it's like a theoretical problem to me because you know, at the end of the day, I'm a human. I'm selfish, and yes. I just want the movie to. I want to feel good and have the fun movie for me. I don't care if other people like the movie. Um, so here's. Let's look at, to the future a little bit. Okay. Well, no, no. Let's oh, before we go there because I because we kind of brushed around it, but I do want to talk about I think the sequence for me that totally nailed and clicked the movie into place, which was Sarazawa going down yes. and resurrecting Godzilla. Um, because there's a couple of things there. Is one I think like the the knowing inversion of the ending of the original Godzilla movie is really potent to me because for people who don't remember the the scientist that creates the oxygen destroyer that kills the original Godzilla is also named Sarazawa. So they, like, those characters are immediately mirrored. Um, That's, which, God, I was having such deja vu through that whole movie. I'm like, why? Maybe it's... I, I, I was thinking, I must just remember it from the 2014 movie. I forgot that's the name in the yeah, Ishiro that's, Hondo original. Yeah, from the original movie, which they never really do anything with in the 2014 movie other than he has the story about how his dad was in World War II, which I'm assuming is, like, some vague, like, ah, uh, that Sarazawa in some weird way. Um... So, so the scene where he goes down to resurrect Godzilla is a like inversion or like mirroring of the ending of the original Godzilla movie. Down to like I would have to go check, but I'm pretty sure it's it's Beer McCurry is playing a version of the ending theme from that first movie, which has also been used in a bunch of other Godzilla movies. Um, most notably, also at the end of Godzilla versus Destroya, where Godzilla dies and is resurrected because that's something that these monsters do all the time. Um, and so him going down and using. Not an oxygen destroyer, but using a nuclear weapon, which is still like basically the same thing, to instead of try to kill Godzilla as as a part of this sort of like tragic cycle of weapons proliferation and development, which is what the first movie is about, um, to for having this character instead of it being like a hopeful version of that, where I'm sort of using the destructive power of this weapon for something positive and good and to create this symbiotic relationship between humanity and Godzilla. There's something so beautiful about that scene. And it is like, that scene would not have worked at all if you didn't have Kinsan doing it and him being there and saying Sadaba Tomoyo as the bomb explodes. And, and then, touching the skin yeah, of Godzilla. And, yeah, touching the skin of Godzilla and doing that. Which is also, like, all this shit is so the fucking 90s Gamera movies. Like, the Atlantis shit... The fucking like touching him like like all that it's super gamera um and yeah, and then Godzilla popping out of the water and it playing the music um also one thing we have to we have I now I have like it, it undying debt to Beer McCreary for having the genius of idea of having taiko drums and chanting put into the original yep. Godzilla theme holy fucking shit that is so cool. And then, yeah, and then having that be... Because we haven't gotten a lot of, like, full-on redos of the Ifukube theme. Like, Shin yeah. Gojira just used the track. Yeah, it literally used the track from the first movie. It didn't yeah. even use, like, the redone tracks from, like, the 90s or whatever. So, yeah. So, it, it like... I mean, like, Beer McCurry is the MVP of this movie. Like, his oh, music easily. is the thing that ties it all together. Like, and it's not just... Like, he's really smart in taking the themes, but he adapts them and uses them for this movie really intelligently and puts his own spin on it. Which, for people who don't know, he was also the composer on God of War, um, which you can. There's a musical connection there. Ben McCree's good at everything he yeah. does. He he's did Battlestar very... Galactica. He did uh, Terminator: The Sarah Connor Chronicles back in the yeah. day. 
He's done lots of TV like that. He's done several. He's he's he did the the AVGN movie, the Angry Video Game Nerd movie. I didn't know that. And That's... he even did like a great version of just the AVGN song of that. He can make anything good. Yeah. So he's like a great composer that like works on smaller scale projects, like kind of in like more obscure stuff like this, which I think is very cool. And he just does such a fucking brilliant job. It's so much better. Like the music is one of the more forgettable parts of the 2014 Godzilla, outside of when they just use classical music in mm-hmm. that movie. Um. So like him and like his use of the music in that whole sequence and Godzilla coming up and then and then get everything from there to him marching to Fenway Park and fucking fighting King Ghidorah and I think that King Ghidorah fight is really fucking good um and then especially the, the another like, because I'm the Godzilla guy I have to like point out the reference to Godzilla versus Destroya where Godzilla starts going nuclear which is something that happens in that movie and like turning red and all that shit is from that movie the, when Godzilla goes full red and like releases it all against Ghidorah that is I, I was excited by that yeah, that is that's really good. fucking awesome and then like the last thing of where you think Ghidorah is getting back up and somehow alive and instead this is Godzilla eating one of his heads it's like that's fucking really that's yeah. fucking really good I thought that was the most creative beat in the movie because it felt like something I hadn't seen before yeah I've never seen that before because usually Godzilla because they're people in suits Godzilla doesn't usually eat the monsters and so I'm just like there's something about that assertion of the like animalistic quality of the monsters in these movies which is something that the CG effects allow them to do much better than the suits could um, there's something about that like the culmination of that of him just like devouring Ghidorah and then like taking his place as king of the monsters Godzilla has a great personality in this one mm-hmm. I thought he did in 2014 too where we got to see him but like he's just he's a good leading man in this movie yes he, oh god, they have that scene earlier where he's, um, this is such a fucking Millennium Era Godzilla movie scene of him, like, in the water coming up to the station and, like, flashing his, like, blue spines. Like, that, fucking so cool. That's so good. That's good. This movie, I like this movie a lot. That's good. No, that's, yeah, I'm glad for you. It's so fucking I, awesome. I like, it. I like it more the more we talk about it because the things I liked are kind of rising in my memory yeah um because if i kind of chisel away at the jadedness from like the first hour there are very good things in the second hour yeah that are very exciting to see um i'm trying to think if there's anything else from that final fight oh i had a question okay Ghidorah grabs the power lines and bites them and powers up is that in gmk i don't i feel like i've seen it and i've seen so few godzilla movies it has to be in one i think it probably either that happens or something like this he like it gets like like a speed becomes like super saiyan king Ghidorah in that movie yeah um so i don't remember if it's from power lines or not i mean there's a long history of monsters like using power lines to become more powerful so it's probably happened at some point but yeah just uh not that in a bad way like i'm saying they're ripping anything off it was just like that was a moment where i'm like okay i've seen that i know because because it is something where the movie has lots and lots and lots of references to other godzilla films but it's never really ripping anything off like it clearly takes a lot of inspiration from gmk and Ghidorah the three-headed monster which makes sense because you know, outside of, I guess Rodan's not in GMK, but other than that, like, they're very similar structures and they have the same kinds of monsters. Like, if you're going to pull an influence from those movies, you pull influences from those two movies. GMK um, has the full, like, Mothra song, right? I believe it does, yeah. yeah it's I got mean, the twins and everything, do. I think. Yes. Because yeah. um, it's, it's, sometimes they have some different, there are a couple of different Mothra songs, um, but it's probably the, the Mothra song, the one that everybody knows. The one originally sung by the Peanuts in 1961. Why do I know that? <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it's, I think you know my my like thing on this movie is that like if you can get past the messiness of the first hour um, and you have the, the love of the kaiju in your heart, I think there's a lot here to love about the movie. I would also um, recommend people seek out um, Matt Zollerseitz's review on RogerGEber.com because that's like the that's the the positive review that is out there that I've seen that I think is like. 
on the nose for like people who like this movie i think he does like great job of sort of like finding the yeah. beat in the like the heart of that movie that pe- that people like me are latching on to because he's also like one of the few sort of famous critics that is also a fan of godzilla so yeah and, and i loved his i love everything matt's all our sites writes i yeah. follow him feverishly he's a great writer yeah um so when i said earlier other people had said this that was the one i was thinking of um, I have a Mothra question. Okay, did yeah. you know they're putting Mothra on Blu-ray here? It's got this cool steel book with like the original no. poster art. It's coming, out in, buy that. it's coming out in July. It's on Amazon right now for only fourteen bucks as a pre-order. And I wanted to ask you, like, the original Mothra is good, right? Um, it's been a long time since I've seen it. My memory is that I, I like it. It's it's okay. uh, Ichiro Honda directed. Um, you've, I feel like you've described the plot to me because yeah. I I was really baffled when we saw. When we watched the uh, GMK, I was like, what the fuck is the song and the twins about? And you, like, explained to me the original yeah. Mothra. So I was wondering if people should look that up. Yeah, because I was actually planning on rewatching that one, because I haven't seen that since I was, like, in high school or something. And that is also on the Toho thing on Internet Archive. So if you want to see this, an HDR yeah. for that movie, you can just... it's And it's, like, all legal. Like, this isn't pirating. This is their official account. It's very cool. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's that. There's also they made a trilogy, which I have not seen these, so I'm not going to get around to it. Um, the Rebirth of Mothra, which is a trilogy of Mothra movies made in the 90s. Also on Blu-ray here. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So, anything else to say about this movie? I like it a lot. I'm not sure if other people would like it, but I like it, and that makes me happy. If nothing else, get the like just at least buy the um, Godzilla cover um, that plays over at the beginning of the end credits. Uh, it is such a good song. It's on Holy Apple. Holy shit. Yeah, it's on Apple Music and Spotify yeah. and everything. I used it. I got it from there for the theme song this week. Yeah, so it's it's the cover of the Blue Blue Oyster Cult song, which I've never been a huge fan of that song. And this just like, this is like one of the best covers of a song I've ever heard that just like makes that song like 10 times better than it ever was. Um, yeah. So that song is fucking amazing. So, okay, they've done, you know, Godzilla. They did Kong Skull Island. They did this. Next up, next summer is I think they're calling it Godzilla versus Kong. Yes, they're not calling it King Kong versus Godzilla. Which that's the 1963 original. Right. Yeah, um, I don't know why they can't just put King in the title. It's Godzilla versus Kong, or yeah. do Godzilla v Kong: Dawn of Monsters or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I you know none of these movies have done great. Godzilla 2014 did good, like 500 million dollars. Console Island did okay. This one looks like it's going to do okay. Do you think they will have their full-on like Avengers moment where everyone comes out for Godzilla v Kong, or do you no. think that's probably it for this era of Hollywood monsters? Like, movies? I I think it, I bet that that's probably going to be the last one, which is going to disappoint me. I think there's a chance that they keep on making them, um, and like maybe they make them slightly lower budget. Maybe maybe the the director of this movie, Michael Men Doherty. in suits. Yes, Men exactly. In suits. If there's anyone that can do it, this Michael Doherty, like fucking just go and just like. I don't know, make it a fucking independent movie somehow. Like, obviously you can't do that because you don't have the license of the monster. Like, get the license somehow from Toho. Make an indie Godzilla movie with dudes in suits and have him fight fucking Anguirus or something. Make it a remake of Godzilla Raids again. Um, and just have, like, songs. Just do the whole fucking thing. Just do it. Um, because I just feel like he just wants to do it. I just feel like he just wants to just make a Godzilla-ass Godzilla movie. Because he got, with this, he got the closest I think anybody can, can within the Hollywood system of making the most Godzilla movie that's, that, that's feasible. Like, it's, it's fucking... I cannot believe that this movie exists. It's, it's utterly baffling to me that they allowed this dude to make this fucking movie. Yeah. I do not know what to think about next year's movie. I hope it's good. I also... The way they set up the story in Kong Skull Island and then in this one, I have no idea how Kong and Godzilla are going to fight. Because yeah. it's not like the 60, is it the 63 film? Yeah, 63, yeah. 
Because Godzilla's just still an asshole in that movie, right? Yes, yeah. That's Godzilla. They Godzilla gets released from an iceberg. Yeah, and yeah, and then he he fights King Kong. So I'm I'm a little terrified of the contortions they're going to have to do to get those two to fight. Because also we haven't like it's the thing that I have to like remind myself when I think about it is that we haven't seen Kong in this universe in like 40 years. So yeah. like 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 I'm just curious what they do with that. I mean, they do have a line in Kong Skull Island that's like a he's still growing thing that's like a like if we need to we can kind of put him on par with Godzilla also the issue I have is like I can't I just it's very hard for me to imagine Kong being able to stand up to Godzilla like how powerful Godzilla is by the end of this fucking movie is like King Kong's just gonna get his fucking ass kicked right like it's just hard for you to imagine him standing a fucking chance yeah I don't know it's because I feel like what you would really want to do is just have the like fight in the middle and then they become friends and there's another enemy to fight i mean this is my guess of what the plot of that movie i mean either you just do a straight up godzilla fights king kong and if you do that and you want to have a winner i would have godzilla win because king kong won the last time so you have to give it to the other guy this time um or my bet is because there is a post-credit scene of godzilla king of the monsters which is uh charles dance tywin lannister showing up um because He's just sort of... They kind of just forget about him. For the I don't last, know like, why he's movie. in this movie. I love Charles Dance, but it's such yeah. a waste of a character. It's, it's He's just there to be, like, evil. He's just like, hey, to be evil. Like, okay, I can do that. Um, but he shows up to um, whatever the country is that uh, Rodan attacked, uh, where Godzilla fought King Ghidorah for a little bit and chopped off his head. And and he buys King Ghidorah's severed head from the mar- like of the black market, which to me is a direct indication that you make a Mecha King Ghidorah because that is a thing um, from Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, which, I, although I don't know if any other director has the fucking balls to just say, like, we're making a Mecha King Ghidorah, like, let's just do it. Um, but if I was making Godzilla vs. Kong with the pieces I have set up, I would do Godzilla and King Kong fight in the middle act of the movie. Um, and, and it's something where the Charles Dance character is setting it up to like try to get them to kill each other so that he can destroy humanity with Mecha King Ghidorah. Um, something happens with the Millie Bobby Brown character that like she's able to stop that fight. I I would also like oh, I guess no, this wouldn't make sense because I keep on forgetting that the ninety the Kong Skull Island is set in the seventies, so it's kind of hard to pull a character from that. Um, anyway, but have Millie Bobby Brown show up, do something, have the monsters. They Godzilla and King Kong reach some sort of understanding. Then Mecha King Ghidorah shows up, and then they both beat up Mecha King Ghidorah. That's the movie I'd make. I would too. Millie Bobby Brown is in the next one. Yes, I and know. So that, is yeah. Kyle Chandler. It's directed by Adam Wingard, who's done some interesting stuff. He did the Death Note movie on, <laughs> on Netflix, Netflix, which yeah. I don't blame him for. I don't blame anyone for that. It's a yeah. bad idea. I do, there's a, there's a history of directors making Death Note movies, making fucking amazing Godzilla movies. So for all we know, okay, this yeah. going to be incredible. Yeah, I mean, again, like they're putting these these a couple of these out so fast that there was no time for that. Um, what are his other movies? He did Your Next, that horror movie. He did the Blair Witch remake that everyone hated. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of up and down. He's although everyone who's done one of these so far has been like a horror director or an indie director who has never done a big budget one. Yeah. So we'll see with this next one. Uh, I forget who's writing it. It's Terry Rossio, who is half of Terry Rossio and. I forget his screenwriting partner, but he did like Aladdin and Pirates of the Caribbean and all of those. So that's kind of interesting. Um, You know, I hope it's good. It'll be interesting. It's March of next year, so it's pretty soon. Yeah, I am really excited for it. Like, I I have no idea if it's going to be good or not. Like, again, these movies are 
phenomenally fucking difficult to make. Oh yes, like it's it's got to be one of the most difficult genres to try to execute on because it's expensive, it's special effects heavy, no matter what how you slice it, and you're tasked with like everybody is there to see the monsters, but you can't just make a ninety minute movie that is just the monsters fighting. Like it's just not like the only like. The most you can do is to just do what Godzilla Final Wars did and just make the other half of the movie The Matrix. Like, like that's like the way you have to be able to do if you want to have it all be action. Um, so yeah, so these movies are hard to make. I don't have any confidence going into any of them that they're going to be great. So far, we've had a pretty solid track record. So like, if, yeah. it's, if it's at least as good as any of these movies, like I'll be very satisfied. I will say the cast does not include Tywin Lannister. But so maybe, maybe they're just maybe keeping they're, that secret. But they have said Zhang Yi is in it again. Oh, there you go. So, she just, yeah, she's the, the one of the, yeah. she's the twins, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Zhang Ziyi should be in more things, and they should give her a bigger role next time because she's great. And um, and let her sing the Mothra song. Let's I sing. would die happy if they let Zhang Ziyi sing the fucking Mothra song and maybe do a little wuxia action just yeah. for good measure. All right. Anything else to say before we wrap up this week, Sean? I like Godzilla. Watching like like this movie coming out has like lit my Godzilla fever again, and so I have watched. Let's see. Because I also watched all three of the um, CG animated Netflix Godzilla movies. Those are like, okay, I would not recommend them if you're not a fan of Godzilla. Okay. Because I think they're hard to get into. Um, but they're, I, li- I enjoyed them. Um, particularly the third one is fucking crazy. So if you do watch them, stick through all the way to the third one. Because the third one is the payoff. Because it's basically one, they're kind of like one giant four and a half hour movie really. Um, that's split into three parts. So I watched those three movies. I rewatched Godzilla 2014. I rewatched Kong Skull Island. I watched... Geeter the Three-Headed Monster, and I watched Godzilla vs. Uh, King Ghidorah. So I've watched seven Godzilla movies in the past week. Um, which really, that's probably the past five days, because I've watched two movies. I've watched part two and three of the Netflix ones, and uh, Geeter the Three-Headed Monster and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah in the same day. So, wow. Yeah. So that's that's why I, you know, I slowed down a little bit on season three of Game of Thrones. It's okay. Yeah. I get it. It's Godzilla fever, and the only prescription is more Godzilla. Yes, and now I have good HD rips of a lot of the Godzilla movies that only have DVDs of. So I'll probably yeah, watch like, am, Mothra and Godzilla vs. Hidora and some of those. I would love to know the story of how this fucking thing on the Internet Archive came about, because I'm going to download the shit out of these. Yeah. Uh, put those on my hard drive. All right. Uh, next week, middle of the week, Wednesday, we will have our E3 podcast. But if you come back into our feed on Monday, we're going to have the start of a new bonus series we're doing. Oh. It will not rob you of other episodes. There will be bonuses, kind of like we did last year with our Doctor Who classics. Uh, drum roll, Sean. Do you want to tell the fine folks what we're going to be rewatching this summer and doing bonus podcast episodes of that we will be starting a week from today? It's the most epic of all things ever. It's something I have been wanting for a very long time. We are finally going to do our fucking Mobile Suit Gundam podcast. Da-da-da-da! Moe Agade. Gundam! <laughs>